You're listening to episode 243 of the Mad Chatters podcast, May 13th, 2020. Most everyone's mad here. <laughs> <laughs> Welcome back to another episode of the Mad Chatters podcast, your very important date with the happenings at Walt Disney World and around the Disney universe. My name is Derek, and joining me today is my co-host, Jeremy. Hey, it's time to put on makeup and light the lights and whatever else we're supposed to do. We're going to do all of that. Uh, Today we're talking all things Muppets. So who better to join us than our good friend and fellow Muppets fan? It's Jeff DePauly. Hi, Heidi Ho. Hi, whole Kermit the Frog here. Um, I, you know, you said who better to join us. I could think of many, many better people to join, but but I'll fill in. So how about that? Yeah, us too. I disagree. Oh, <laughs> oh that's very nice of you, Derek. Thank you. Okay, so Jeff, when you and I first started talking about you coming on the show to talk about the Muppets, you mentioned that you also were planning a Muppets episode for this week, and so you brought up an idea that Jeremy and I really loved. And now, listeners, we are bringing you the first ever Mad Chatters Disney Coast to Coast crossover event. I like to think of it as a tag team event. It's, you know, it's fun. And it's the thing that I think is actually really funny about this is we both were planning Muppets episodes for very, very different reasons. You mentioned it was the anniversary of, of um, Jim Henson's death, right? Correct. And then I was like, oh, it's Kermit's birthday and the anniversary of Muppet Vision 3D. So I thought it was really funny that we're both like thinking Muppets themes, but for totally different reasons. Well, it was actually Jeremy who brought up his death. And I I actually said to him, I don't know if you remember this, Jeremy, but I said, I mean, honoring someone's death is not like my favorite way to (laughs) go into an episode. But yeah, I mean, that works. So I'm glad that it's also Kermit's birthday and also the anniversary of Muppet Vision 3D. I mean, a lot of anniversaries in May, apparently, for the for the Henson clan. Yeah, it's a big month for Muppets fans. Uh, yeah, so we are talking about the Muppets over on Disney Coast to Coast. Right now, you can hear Jeremy and Jeff talk about the Muppets. And they are two different topics, but they do complement one another. Uh, Jeff, do you want to give a tease for what listeners can expect from your episode? Yeah, so there was a TV special called The Muppets at Walt Disney World back in 1990, and Jeremy and I watched it for the first time and just had a very honest and frank discussion about this special, and I will tell you folks, there is some shocking stuff. In fact, Jeremy teased it right at the beginning when we were recording. He goes, you know, I never thought I'd see... Actually, why don't you say it, Jeremy? Do you remember what you said? Uh, something to the effect of, I never thought I'd see the day that Kermit shot a Nazi. Exactly. <laughs> and and that's how we will leave that and say that if you want to listen to that episode, head to DisneyCoastToCoast.com and it's up there. Uh, these are both of these episodes are being released at the same time. So uh, it's something. I'll tell you, it's something. I think we should also mention it was it was some of our most comedic. We were just nailing it, too. I mean, just some of our best work as well. So. Well, well, here's the God's honest truth. Whenever you're on the show, it's naughtier than ever. Like the, the, <laughs> innu- 
the innuendos are just like it doesn't happen with other people but with you it's bad news <laughs> yeah you know it's a gift I can't wait. This sounds great. (laughs) (laughs) All right. Well, like we said, it is the 30th anniversary of Jim Henson's passing. He passed on uh, May 16th, 1990. He, of course, was the brain behind the Muppets. Uh, One of his very first projects was a TV show called Sam and Friends, which he created in college. And the first episode debuted on May 9th, 1955. And that is what introduced us to introduced us to Kermit the Frog. So, so many anniversaries happening happening this month. And a bit later, Jeff is going to help us look specifically at the Muppets' presence in Walt Disney World. Uh, But first, since it's the anniversary of Jim's passing, let's talk about the man who is Jim Henson. Jeremy, you've always expressed a lot of respect, a lot of admiration for Jim Henson. What was it about him that you admired so much were there which of his projects resonated most with you yeah i mean as a child of the late 80s and in the 90s uh you know i grew up with muppet babies the animated show of course there was the muppet movie muppets take manhattan great muppet caper uh those things were all instrumental in my life and then as i got a little older there in the mid 90s we had muppets tonight which uh you know, as a part of the TGIF lineup. So the Muppets, I feel like, have always been in my life on some level. And uh, for me, I think understanding who Jim Henson was as a person and his relationship to the Muppets, even before I kind of knew who Walt Disney was, I knew who Jim Henson was. And maybe that was because um, one of the things with the Muppets is that they've always been very open and honest about the fact that these are puppets and they are controlled by puppeteers and they're not afraid necessarily to pull back that curtain and bring down the fourth wall. Uh, But also I can remember in grade school, one of the first books that I remember reading as like a second grader had to do with a biography and I chose Jim Henson. And so then I always kind of connected to him because I understood his story and I understood him creating Kermit and he created this fantasy world and uh, that just captured my imagination as a boy. So Jim Henson has always had a special place in my heart. I love that you mentioned Muppets tonight. You and I have talked about this many times, uh, but I think everybody who loves the Muppets has that one or two Muppets things that they really gravitated to as a kid and maybe watched over and over again. And for me, it was The Great Muppet Caper and Muppets Tonight, just because I was at the right age to kind of get the humor and appreciate the zaniness of the Muppets. And of course, Great Muppet Caper, you can easily find Muppets Tonight, not so much. Uh, But those are what instilled in me a love for, uh, I guess, Jim Henson, but definitely the Muppets. What about you, Jeff? Let's, I'm going to ask you guys a, a little bit of trivia first, just because you're both such big Muppets Tonight fans. And there is only one right answer to this. Who was the greatest guest on Muppets Tonight? Well, coming from you, I'm going to assume it's uh, Rick Moranis or something. It was Rick Moranis, yes, mm-hmm. indeed. He was on there, and it was fabulous. But in any case, <laughs> no, I've been—I have been a Jim Henson fan my entire life, and it's funny. When I was a kid, I had to do a biography project as well, and it was on Walt Disney. And uh, but Jim Henson has always been right up there for me, and a huge fan. And you know, my favorite thing that the company's done that I've seen was a a little thing a lot of people don't know about called Emmett Otter's Jug Band Christmas. And to this day, 
it is my favorite Jim Henson project, which I know sounds insane because he's done so many incredible things, but this special, the level of detail in it, and it's also music written by Paul Williams, who did music, you know, he wrote Rainbow Connection and a bunch of other things, but I will argue the best music Paul Williams has written for the Muppets, and I'm obsessed with it, and I'm obsessed with everything Muppets. I love it all so much, and I'm happy to see that a new generation of kids are falling in love with the Muppets because I know that the new Muppet Babies show is doing very well. Mm. So even though we're in this little weird limbo right now of, you know, it's weird. There are There's definitely a generation of people who don't really care about the Muppets. But 10, 15 years from now, they're going to be back in full swing, I think, because of this new generation. So that's great. I'd love that. Yeah. I have uh, binged the Muppets show from 2015. It's currently on Disney plus it's 16 episodes. They're, you know, half hour episodes, super easy. And let me tell you, I have laughed like genuinely laughed so much watching that show. So I would encourage you, if you didn't watch it back in 2015, give it a shot. Now it really holds up and it really has some genuine comedy in it. That is not like that. It's not the slapstick comedy. It's very witty. Mm-hmm. Yeah, what was the name of the IT guy? Chip? Chip the IT guy? Chip. Oh my gosh. Yes. Absolute standout character from that show. <laughs> Even but I think I think the one who really breaks out in that is Pepe. And oh, yeah. uh, he has some some of the, his one-liners throughout that show. I mean, I was rewinding them and rewatching them. It was so funny. One of my favorite things about that show was they so, you know, on it Miss Piggy has a talk show and they on her soundstage door was a giant picture of her and what, what was the show called was it like piggy tonight or something uh late night with miss piggy there we go late night was miss piggy so over on the walt disney studios lot which is very close to where i live is that sound was was that soundstage with the giant door and it was just always fun to go to the lot and like see that i was yeah. like this is kind of cool and yeah seeing the uh, the muppets are awesome and i've been lucky enough to like see a lot of live stuff with the Muppets and them shooting and stuff and they're just incredible and it's I've interviewed a puppet before which is weird but also like not nearly as weird as you would think it's just so believable it's it's weird yeah no but it's great and uh I, like Jeff said I think we always have sort of this um this this conversation about what is Disney doing with the Muppets and where is the Muppets going? And despite the fact that I feel like, for the most part, Muppet fans feel that the company is not necessarily taking them in a direction that they like or even a direction at all, somehow the Muppets are so resilient, they keep coming back mm-hmm. in some way or another. Uh, yeah. You know, They may go away for a few years, but they bounce back. So that's what I like about the Muppets, too. They have a lot of versatility to them. Yeah, very cyclical. I think that's the Imagineers. I think that there's definitely a group of Imagineers that, like us, you know, are just fans. And they'll just try and try and try to sneak them in whenever they can. And I think that's... I don't think it's the company saying, like, we need more Muppets most of the time. I think it's usually just fans working uh, on projects there and making it happen. Yeah, that's the... impression I got with uh, Jason Siegel in 2011. I just felt like he was a fan of the Muppets, said to Disney, I want to bring him back. I have a script. And they were like, all right, great. Yeah. Can we talk about something a little controversial, though, for a minute? How did you guys feel about 
Kermit's voice currently? Because because Steve Whit Whitmire Whitmore. Yeah, Whitmire. Whitmire was the voice of Kermit who took over after uh, Jim Henson passed away. And really the Kermit voice that I guess a lot of us are, are more familiar with even than Jim Henson's. And then he was let go from that in 2016, 17. So this new feller is doing it. His name's like Matt something. And I'm sure he's a wonderful guy. But I'm not sold on, on that being the voice of Kermit. When you say current, like, what's a project I would have heard this new voice in? Okay, it really stuck out to me. They recently released a video on online of Kermit singing uh, Rainbow Connection. Rainbow Connection, yeah. And then a few nights ago on the Disney Family sing-along, at the beginning, the Muppets make an appearance, and Kermit speaks. And it, to me, it just does not sound like Kermit. It sounds like a bad Kermit impression. Mm. Yeah, so I have a lot of thoughts on the Kermit thing, just because I am very much uh, for character consistency. But the I kind of forgive them when it comes to Kermit and other puppets, because the reality is, like, if you're just searching for somebody who can do a voiceover match, that is entirely different than searching for somebody who can do a voiceover match and be a brilliant puppeteer. So I understand why it's kind of like a double whammy for them. But in as much as like I have had difficulty with the latest Kermit voice, I, I, I agree it does sometimes sound like a bad impression. I do think that that Muppet fan or the Disney Family Sing Along thing that was on TV the other night was the first time that I was like, okay, okay, I get it. But I also just want to add, if you go back and listen to some of Steve Whitmire's first Kermit stuff, which I think would have been the first big project he did was Muppet Christmas Carol. And compare it to like what Jim Henson was doing immediately before that, it's a pretty big difference. We just got used to it, and we grew up with Steve Whitmire as Kermit. So, I, I can concede you know, that. I, and and you're, you're right. I think that this generation will get used to that, and, and maybe a couple of projects in, we'll all kind of forget about it. But it's just very striking to me at first. Agreed, but I will say that, uh, like I was saying, with the whole, because there needs to be a brilliant puppeteer as part of it as well, I forgive a, a not-perfect Kermit match more than I forgive a not-perfect Mickey match, if that makes sense. Yeah. yeah. Yeah, I'd agree with that. And, you know, you can call me a casual fan if you want, but I, I never would have noticed if you had not pointed it out. So Really? Yeah. Wow. Yikes. While we're talking about Jim Henson, I just want to go through his catalog real quickly because he did more than the Muppets. Like, he helped develop characters for Sesame Street. He helped perform some of the voices like Kermit, like Ernie from Sesame Street. They had a lot of segments on Saturday Night Live that he helped with. Of course, The Muppet Show, which was before our time, but The Muppet Show was huge on network, network television. It was sort of like our Muppets tonight, I guess. Uh, of course, the Muppet movies. He did uh, more live-action movies later on in his career, like Labyrinth and the Dark Crystal. He established the Jim Henson Foundation. Uh, so a, a lot of wonderful things came from the mind of Jim Henson. And speaking of him, we have a special interview we're about to bring you. Uh, so, Jeremy, do you want to tell us more about the man we are about to hear from? For sure. Uh, we are going to speak to Jim Henson's latest biographer, uh, his name is Brian J. Jones, 
And he has written several biographies, uh, including Washington Irving, George Lucas, uh, Dr. Seuss. And then, like I said, uh, I think in 2013, this book was published and it's uh, a biography of Jim Henson. And it's a it's a hefty book and it, it's deep, but it's a very easy, enjoyable read. And if you are a Muppets fan and uh, or even if you're just a casual Muppets fan, I think that you can enjoy it because there's something uh, for everyone on every level. And it touches all of Jim's projects, things that we're familiar with and things that we're not. And so uh, we were honored that he took some time out of his schedule to speak to us about the legacy of Jim Henson. And we're going to play that interview right now. That's right. And then when we come back, we'll be talking about the Muppets' rich history at Walt Disney World. All right. Well, we are here with Brian J. Jones. Thank you, Brian, for joining us. And uh, coming up here on May 16th is the 30th anniversary of the death of Jim Henson. And you have written many biographies. And I have to tell you, uh, ashamedly, that I've had your book for few years now on my shelf and then uh it's just kind of sat there always meaning to get around to it reading reading and then we got the quarantine and i thought now's the time i'm gonna start reading some things that have been on my shelf for a while and i picked up your book first and loved it absolutely fascinating it's very it's it's heavy in the sense of there's a lot of information but it's such an easy and, uh, oh, well, I'm glad, to, and and it's and I don't begrudge you for saying you sat on a long time. It is, I think, it's 587 pages or 603 pages, something like that. It's a very long book, so I I totally get that. Indeed, and I have a a little personal connection to Jim Henson because way back, I want to say in second or third grade, when you start sort of reading what they call chapter books in school, and I remember my teacher said, "We're gonna everybody has to read a biography." we learned about what a biography is and uh we went to the library and i'll never forget getting a book on jim henson which book did you get do you remember i have no idea and i wish i did because um, there aren't any I, biographies that the reason i ask because there aren't any, there aren't any biographies that was one of the reasons i you know was interested in writing that book because there actually was not a biography of him which was hard to believe yeah but this one was definitely like i said geared towards children but i remember it yeah. talking about how he made kermit out of his mother's you know right. robe or whatever um, so i guess we want to start off by asking what drew you to make a jim henson biography other than the fact that you said there wasn't a lot out there well that was partly it i mean um you're always trying to figure out what your next subject is and i you know it's <laughs> I have people come out, come back later, but some of the reviewers have said that I've written, you know, the trilogy of the American imagination with Irving, I'm sorry, with Jim Henson, George Lucas, Dr. Seuss. And like, and I wish I could say I had that all planned out. Like George Lucas, I could tell you I had it all planned out. Um, but, but I didn't. Um, it was one of those things that my, so my first book was on the American writer, uh, Washington Irving, which was a guy I got really interested in. And there wasn't a biography on him either. Hadn't been one for like 80 years at that point. But when I got done with him, um, I hadn't even really thought about writing another one, and and I wish I had a great definitive story on this, but I can't remember exactly all the details. I was somehow ended up on Jim Henson's Wikipedia page, and was reading all the stuff about Jim, and went down to the bottom to see if it was cited. And, and the and the code I saw in here is like anyone cites anything on Wikipedia, but Muppet fans are actually extraordinarily good at that. Um, <laughs> And there was no and there was no biography cited. It was like Jim Henson designs and doodles and of Muppets and Men, which was one of my favorite books as like a teenager. I used to check out the library all the time. Um, and so it was a lot of books about the work, and there wasn't an actual biography of him. Um, and that was not, that was in two thousand. 
you know, six, I think. And so, you know, we were coming up, I think, on the 20th anniversary was going to be of his death at that time. And I just started, um, you know, making a, a couple of calls around. I was living in Maryland at that time, and I lived actually the next county over from where Jim Henson grew up, which was kind of cool. Mm. So I went over to the University of Maryland where there's an archive, and I talked to the archivist over there. And he put me in touch with uh, the, the gentleman who was Jim's publicist when Jim was alive. A really lovely guy named Arthur Novell, and I started the conversation with Arthur about, you know, why isn't there a biography? And as I found out years later, they got asked that question about once every week by some <laughs> up-and-coming, you know, wannabe biographer, and uh, and somehow uh, they thought that, you know, I could do a good enough job with it. Um, I think I think what really broke it open for me was I'd been I'd been sort of having conversations with the families for like for like two years. I mean, there's a widow, there was the widow and five kids, which is, you know, a tough negotiation and everybody's got their, you know, their own agendas and their own stories and their own things they want to protect. Um, but what I finally did was I went down to the library of Congress and, and again, because Jim had grown up in the DC area, he got lots and lots of coverage when he was doing salmon friends in high school and at the university of Maryland. So in all these obscure, weird Virginia newspapers, which were all at the library of Congress, I found all sorts of articles and little interviews with him. So I wrote sort of a mock-up chapter on Jim and um, when he was in high school and doing Sam and Friends in high school and in college. And I put a little bit in there on history of television and puppetry on television because you kind of want to show off that you can do research. And, um, and I sent that chapter into the Hensons, and I just said, this is the way I would do this. You know, this is, I want to try to have Jim tell the story. I want to keep my voice out of as much as I can and try to let Jim tell it and other people tell it. And when I sent that to them, I think that that, that was the moment I think they went, okay, we, we get it. We, we say we do that. We, we, we don't have a problem with that. We approve. And then, so that was the point at which I was sort of in. And when that happened, because one of the things I really wanted was the Jim Henson Company archives. Um, Jim's papers are not held at a university. They're not donated anywhere. They're privately held at the Jim Henson Company. So you have to be in their offices to access them. So that, to me, was a really important part of it. Um, there had been one point when we were having conversations where Lisa Henson said, um, if we tell you no, are you going to do it anyway? And I said, I don't really know that I could do it the way I want to, because the way I want to is I want Jim's voice telling it as much as I can, and I need those papers to do that. So anyway, those sample chapters sort of got me the access I need to those papers and to the Hensons, who were absolutely lovely. And it ended up being um, not an authorized bio, because authorized tends to mean that they can stop it if they don't like it, um, but it was uh, written with their cooperation. I mean, and they were hugely helpful and gave me, you know, if, if I'd come along and I'd, be, and I'd say something like, God, I'd, I really really would love to be able to talk with Frank Oz. And I'm like, oh, we have Frank Oz's phone number for you. <laughs> so, wow. so, so that helped That helped a lot in the process. Wow. I would be like, and I really wish I had like $10,000 as well to help me. Oh, yeah, we got that too. Here you go. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, you don't get any of that, unfortunately. But, that, but access was the big thing that I needed. I just needed to be able to sit down in those archives. And their archivist, Karen Falk, who stole the Henson Company, is just dynamite and so helpful and knows where everything is kept. And uh, it was like, it, it, you know, it's kind of like Raiders of the Lost Ark. It's, it's disappointing in the sense that you walk into this room and it's just like five rows of shelves and it's like boxes that all look the same on every single shelf. And um, but, you know, there's probably 300 boxes in there. So you just keep pulling them out two or three at a time. And I would take them in the side office and just start going through them. Is that where you got access to like Jim's journal? Because I know you cite yep. that a lot in the book. Yep, that's all there in the archives, and uh, and that's one of the neatest things. I actually made a color photocopy of that, so I had it at my disposal the whole time. So if I needed, it, I could always go back and get it and get Jim's voice out of it, which is what you really want. Because what was what was kind of surprising to me is that I mean the guy didn't really. I mean, it's not surprising once you know more about it, but like he didn't really sit and talk a lot. 
to people. There aren't a lot of big interviews with him. You really had to grab him where you could get him, and that journal was very helpful in that regard. Can you talk about uh, what it was like researching? Because you talked about the the people in his life that you got to have conversations with. But how does it compare speaking to people like Frank Oz and his family versus reading Jim's actual words in his journal and his papers and things like that? Well, so one of the things that I love to do as a, as a biographer and a researcher is I, I love to ask everybody sort of the same questions and see if you start getting the same answers and see if you get the same stories, because that's where you start to know where agendas come in with people. You ask, you ask the story, and you hear it the first time, and then you, so you ask some, the next person the exact same question to hear the story again, and you sort of want to see if those stories start laying over each other and line up, and when they don't, you've got to figure out where they're not correct and how you fix them. So that's, always real, that's one of the fun things about biography and research, and that's the only, you can only do that through, um, through interviewing people and sitting with them and, and trying to tell you know, what they're, what's making them nervous. When you ask a question, did they you know, intentionally try to, try to throw you off? Um, didn't get a lot of that, actually. But I love to ask people, um, you know, what, did Jim, uh, what did Jim like to eat? What did he do? When you went out to eat with him, what did he order? There's something about that question that people all of a sudden will start telling you all sorts of things that are not even related to it. But I loved it because what everybody said, very first thing when I would ask it, they would say, I don't really remember, but I know we had dessert. Now, that's an <laughs> awesome little that's an awesome little detail right there. Yeah. Like, and, and it got to the point where everybody's like, Jim loved dessert. And, and I'd say something like, you know, so you guys were making the Muppet show and you would sit in and they would, they would bring lunch in from the bar downstairs. What did you bring in? Everyone's like, I don't know, but I'm sure there was something sweet there on the table for dessert. I mean, it's like I, I loved that detail. It was a charming, sweet little detail that like, you wouldn't have gotten that any other way, but just starting asking people questions like that. So that's, that's when interviewing gets to be really fun. Um, one of the other neat things I did get to do was I got to go to, um, out to California, and the only place I could interview Dave Goles, who performs Gonzo, was he and Steve Whitmire, who performs Kermit. And I had talked with Steve in Atlanta, where he lives, a couple weeks earlier. Um, but he and Steve Whitmire were performing Kermit and Gonzo. They were making a, the video with OK Go of them doing the Muppet Show theme. So what was cool about that was, first of all, I got to watch OK Go make a video, but I got to watch the two of them perform. And what was really neat, and God, and we, like, we were there all night. Like, you know, they, being on a movie set is basically sit around waiting, I found out. But, um, but they, um, you know, what was really cool there was to watch these two guys who were old friends who had known each other forever, just like know each other's rhythms intuitively. So it's like, so I was watching, you know, Muppet performers and that chemistry that they had learned under Jim still doing it together and also getting to watch that Muppet style performing where they never are looking over their heads at the puppet. They're always looking down at the monitors and watching what it looks like in real time. So, so it's getting, so the real life experiences you get from going out and interviewing people and being face to face is where you get a lot of the neat things that really color your narrative and color the way you tell the stories because you've actually experienced it. Wow. Yeah. Huh. What a cool experience indeed to go and see an actual Muppet performance being, being recorded. Uh, you know, Jim, kind of grew up in, in a time when television was just starting out and he right. really saw that as his opportunity. That's what he wanted to do was right. be in TV. And he started. Right. Yeah. That, right. That's why that one chapter is called, um, called something like means to an end. It was like, whatever it took to get on TV, he was going to do it. It didn't matter what, what it was. Definitely. And uh, so he started with some commercials and then eventually was uh, doing a show, which Early television fascinates me compared to where we have landed now. Because when I first heard he was doing Sam and Friends and it was a five minute show twice a day live, I'm like, that sounds exhausting and a waste of time all at the same time. But he really, you know, made the most of it. So I guess my question is, 
in his early formation of becoming Jim Henson, what were some of the, the hardest obstacle, obstacles you think that he had to face that ultimately made him who he was? I think, I think a big part of it is, um, it, 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 and it, I find this with Jim Henson, I find it with George Lucas, I even find it with Dr. Seuss, and even Washington Irving. And they all have this weird knack, what I call finding solutions to problems hidden in plain sight. And Jim was one of these guys that, like, didn't know anything about puppetry. I mean, I always tell everybody, I'm like, this isn't Steven Spielberg at age 80s, like, filming his trains and crashing into each other and playing it back in slow motion. And everyone's <laughs> like, that Steven's going to be a filmmaker. Uh, because, like, Jim had no interest in puppets. Um, you know, everyone's like, oh, you must have played with puppets as a kid. Nope. Like, no interest in puppets. Um, it, you know, as you pointed out, TV is where he wanted to be. And so it just so happened that they were hiring puppeteers for a TV show. I asked Jane Henson, had they been hiring weathermen? Would he have been the world's greatest weatherman? And she's like, I don't know, maybe it would have been. Um, but so, you know, so he, so he teaches himself puppetry in like two weeks and he builds puppets because fortunately he'd had a grandmother who taught him how to sew. So he could like sew and make his own puppets and do it. So, so he doesn't know any of the rules behind performing and puppetry like because he had to learn it so quickly so he, again he wasn't some student of puppetry or student of film um so so when he starts performing on tv the only puppet show he's ever really seen on tv was kuka fran and ollie which everybody watched like we have no idea it was like the biggest show in the world it was like back in the age of like you know breaking bad when like everybody's sitting around watching breaking bad and, you know the days of streaming it's so hard to do anything you're all doing together but like everybody would watch kuka fran and ollie also about meth i believe right Ollie made meth, correct? Yeah, pretty much. Yeah, and they yeah. were running around in an RV together. Yeah, with uh, <laughs> with Kukla driving. Um, so, so like that was the only puppet show Jim had seen. But what Jim figured out immediately, and this is what's incredible, like immediately, he's still in high school, and he figures this out. You know, when you when you when Kukla Fran and Ollie were on television, they would you know hold up the little puppet theater with the curtain in front of it and film the whole puppet theater. And Jim was like, why do I need to film the puppet theater with the curtain? Like, I'll just take the puppet theater away and I'll just use all four sides of the screen for the puppet theater. Now, to us, that makes perfect sense because that's the way puppets have always looked on TV because that's the way Jim Henson started doing puppets on TV and everybody realized that made perfect sense. So, like, there's something right there that made him Jim Henson. Like, figured out something that was, like, intuitive about the media he had picked to use. Um, and completely reformed it when he's 18 years old because nobody had seen that solution, again, hidden in plain sight. The other thing he does that's so cool, and it, more of the solution hidden in plain sight, is he, he realizes, he goes, well, you know, if, if the four sides of the screen are what really matter, I need to be sure I know the way that looks. And the solution to that, again, is he's like, well, I'll just watch myself on TV while we're doing it. So there's always that monitor on the floor in front of the Muppet performance. Still to this day, this is the Muppet style performing, that monitor is on the floor. So no Muppet performers like got their arm up and like looking up at the puppet. They're always looking straight down at the floor, watching that performance. So they can monitor. It's not just like, am I keeping my head out of the way? Though that's part of it. But it's like, I mean, think about how weird that is. That's the only acting profession where you get to watch yourself perform. Mm -hmm. So like, you can you can modify your performance or you know make sure the eye lines line up, but like modify that performance in real time. Um, and, you know, figure out where the beats are and make sure you know exactly what it looks like when they come zipping in off, off screen here. Is that right? You know, how about up here? You know, watch that in real time and adjust. That's really incredible. Jim figures that out day one again. So, you know, so already right away he's done two things when he's got his own TV show as like, an, you know, an 18, 19-year-old student that fundamentally reform the way puppetry looks on TV. And that's what already he's making his brand at that age right out of the gate. Yeah, I think it's also interesting that he 
really never gave up. He got a lot of rejection, and he always had an idea that he thought was going to be the next big thing. But even when it didn't come through, he didn't just throw his hands up and quit. And I think that's one of the things that I took away from from the biography, really looking at Jim Henson, is that you have a great idea, doesn't pan out, that doesn't mean another great idea isn't on the horizon. Yeah, I think he would be happy to hear that that was one of your takeaways, because, I mean, it is, it is, it has to be frustrating for him. I love the period of the 1960s with him, because, you know, it's like he's made it, he's made a lot of money doing commercials, like the, the Wilkins Coffee commercials, which everybody go look up on YouTube and watch them, they're hilarious. Um, he actually, it, I, I loved a couple of years ago when the Muppets made a commercial during the Super Bowl and people were wringing their hands going, Jim Henson must be staying in his grave, the Muppets are selling cars. <laughs> Sorry, the Muppets have been selling stuff since 1957. <laughs> um, but, you know, so he's, he's, made a, he's made a lot of money out of, the, out of making his commercials. So, he, you know, he, fortunately, he could afford to fail. Um, and also, the Muppets themselves were making regular appearances on TV shows and variety shows. So he's always kind of got that back to fall back on. But Jim really wanted to do a whole lot more than just that. And so that's why you know, I'm so glad. I think he would be glad to hear you say, you know, keep, keep going and, you know, keep believing, keep pretending, as they say. Um, because you get to the 60s, and that, that's one of my favorite periods in his life, because we all kind of know intuitively as we're reading his story that the 1960s are going to end, like the big exclamation point at the end of that sentence, is Sesame Street comes along. But in the 1960s, he doesn't, like, he's, he's trying to do a lot of things. You know, he's making little, you know, hippie documentaries, he's, you know, Youth 68, and he makes The Cube, that really avant-garde sort of Twilight zone special for NBC that viewers don't quite get. And, you know, he's, um, he's, he's floating around the idea for Cyclia, the adult nightclub. Um, even in the early 70s, he's, he's got an idea to do a Muppet live Broadway musical that like people are just like, nobody wants to see the puppeteer on stage, Jim. No one's going to get this, <laughs> um, you know, ahead of his time again. So, so it's like he always has a lot of ideas, a lot of balls in the air. That's what really surprised me. A lot of things going on. A, a lot of that stuff in the 60s never, never really goes anywhere. But, you know, again, he was lucky and he could afford to fail because he did have the money coming from the Muppets, but he just kept trying. And even when his ideas, something like Cyclia, couldn't really work because the technology wasn't there yet. He was too far ahead of the curve on that. He was like, we need to have like a plastic floor that a movie, it's like a translucent floor that a, a, video, a music video, which didn't exist, could project on on the floor and like play the music in real time. People could dance on it. Everyone's like that. And we don't know how you're going to possibly pull this off. And, you know, that's, that's technology that, you know, finally hit in the 1970s. So a lot of big ideas that the technology just wasn't there for him yet either. Yeah. Uh, I think this is the reason that I've heard quite a few people compare Jim Henson to Walt Disney. You know, we're a Disney podcast. Uh, but because both men were always pursuing some new medium or always looking for, like, a new passion or a new way of doing things. And I think that's exactly what you're getting at with him. Like, he's so great at puppetry, he could have just left it at that and kept making that better. But he was always pursuing other things. Yeah. If there's one project that's not Muppets related that you would encourage people to go check out if they can or, or just go research more what would it be i i love cyclia that's yeah. one of those projects because it's first of all it's it's so it it seems on the face of it so non-jim i mean it's it's a very grown-up project but again jim henson was about grown-up projects that's the thing people always forget i mean we tend to pigeonhole him as a children's performer primarily because of sesame street which was one of his big concerns when he took that job um, he, he had said something to Jerry Joel, you know, I'm not just a puppeteer. No, I'm the children's puppeteer, damn it. Um, but so 
that's that that's the one project in the 60s i love cycling there's not a lot to go look at there's some video the henson companies put up that shows some of the film footage he shot that he was envisioning you know projecting on the walls and i think they set it to you know the rolling stone satisfaction and so, so you'll see some of those videos it's c-y-c-l-i-a google it on youtube or, or type it in youtube and you will see some of the film footage jim shot for that it's almost like Studio 54, really kind of before Studio 54. That's exactly what it is. That, that's exactly what it is. It's like Studio 54. Then if you have, you know, it's like even you see the movie Saturday Night Fever and they're dancing and as the music's playing, like the lights are going. <laughs> like it's just the lights in time with the music, which you couldn't do in 1965. Um, but the other thing I would tell people to look at, too, from that period is Timepiece, which is the short film he did. It's about seven minutes long. Um, it's very very Jim. And again, not a single Muppet in sight, but Jim wrote it, storyboarded it, directed it, helped write the music for it. There's animation in it that he did on, at home on his own animation board. Um, and it's just about this guy, you know, it, well, it's hard to tell what it's about, but I, it's, it's about somebody who's, you know, sort of racing against time, which was kind of a theme in Jim's life too. He, his brother, Paul, his older brother, Paul was killed in an automobile accident at age 19. And Lisa Henson put it beautifully where she said, you know, I think after that, he had a little bit of jet fuel in his blood, um, you know, knew that maybe that, you know, life didn't, you know, wasn't for forever and you had to try to get it all in. And I think Jim sort of had that going on in his life when Paul died. He was going to try to get it all in and try to get it all done. And unfortunately, that proved to be true. He didn't have all the time in the world. But timepiece is kind of like that. And a lot of interesting images. People always remember the one of Jim painting the elephant pink in it is in that in that video of diving off of a high dive in a in a top hat and tails that's another one again go to go to youtube and just type in timepiece and that'll come up was nominated for an academy award uh it did not win jim later said that he didn't even vote for it which i think was probably not true (laughs) (laughs) well talking about these things and coming up in the 60s and 70s and all these sort of out there ideas one of the things in your book that i just found fascinating was i just feel like people always assumed everybody was laying around doing drugs and coming up with these sort of ideas. And yeah. you kind of say that Jim really was not into that. Right. And so, God, great question. Because again, when I told everybody I was doing the Jim Henson biography, everyone was like, find out about the drugs, man. He's got to be on drugs. You know? And a lot of what they point to is Saturday Night Live. And Saturday Night Live probably was drug, probably mostly pot induced, but Jim didn't write that. So, you know, so any of the drug references in that, Jim wasn't writing those sketches. They were just performing it. Part of the reason that those sketches didn't work is probably because Jim and his, and his writers weren't writing them. Uh, the, Saturday Night, the Saturday Night Live writers were primarily Al Franken and Tom Davis. Uh, I tried to talk with Al Franken. He was the senator at the time and he wouldn't talk to me. Um, <laughs> But um, but uh, they were you know they would joke about drawing the short straw and having to write the Muppet sketches and uh, and you know they were calling them the mucking puppets which I actually called the chapter that and somebody yelled at me about that in Mississippi once. Um, <laughs> but yeah, so there was, so that that was that was one of the big things I wanted to ask everybody about. And uh, Jim, you know, was was as Jerry Nelson put it uh, very diplomatically, a little grass time to time. Um, but no, was not a drug user um, and was you know. Once he got later in life, was very into what they called his white phase, which is kind of like you know John Lennon looked at one point in the Beatles, was like the white suit and the white sneakers, and he drank white wine and he ate fish, and you know was sort of like the clean and tried vegetarian life at one point I think because Cheryl wanted to, but um, but the story I love that's in the book and there is a drug story in there, which I don't know if you want me to tell or not or let people find out, but there is a really great drug story in there. And it was the one story that, and this is one Derek that like comes out of interviewing people, so I heard it once, 
Um, I actually had read it in an interview with somebody who's now dead, but they had sat for an interview that's in the Henson archives, and they told that story, and I went, oh my God, that is such a fantastic story. I hope it's true. <laughs> and so I kept, so I asked everybody who was around at that time about it, and everybody remembered it, and everybody told it the same ah. way, which is exactly what you want. So, yeah. so the, no, LS, the we'll LSD story is in the book, and it is verified by five people. It is a fantastic story. Yeah, we'll leave it, and we'll just say it, it doesn't end the way you think it would end. Right. <laughs> um, so, as Derek alluded to earlier, we are a Disney podcast, and so kind of fast forward in a little bit, because we know Jim eventually became successful with The Muppet Show. Um, well, he was already successful, but that was another one of his successes there in the uh, mid-70s. Then, obviously, the Muppet movie started coming, you know, leading to more and more movies. Then you have things like The Dark Crystal and, and uh, Labyrinth. And ultimately, you kind of get up to the end of Jim's life. And uh, he starts negotiating with Disney about purchasing uh, Henson. The whole, ship, the whole ship, yeah, the whole shebang. Not just the Muppets, but the entire company. So that would be... Um, things which Disney currently doesn't own. If I can jump ahead a little bit, that was going to include sure. like the fra- it's going to include like the Fraggles. It was going to include Dark Crystal. Uh, was never going to include the Sesame Street side of it, but it was gonna, it was going to be the whole rock at that point. Yeah. Did it? Did it also? I might be wrong about this. Did it also include like almost Jim himself, like a contract with Jim himself? Yes, and I think I mean that was really what I think Disney wanted in that deal. I mean, I think that's what made the acquisition of that company so attractive. And it was, you know, this was 1990. It was a $150 million deal, which was a pretty gigantic deal at the time. But I think part of what made that deal so attractive to them was they were getting Jim Henson in the deal. Mm-hmm. Uh, and there was discussion going on on what that looked like, um, how long, you know, they were going to have him as an exclusive. How many years was that going to be? Um, Jim's uh, big point of contention that he negoti- that he was really negotiating with Elon on was one of the one of the terms of that agreement was he had to have his own independent production company, but they were trying to figure out was it housed within Disney um, or was it completely on its own? Now housing within Disney would have been nice because they would have been literally paying the overhead for that. Jim, one of the things that I think made Jim very tired and one of the reasons that selling the company became attractive later is he was as one of the business people put it. Constantly chasing the overhead um, was, you know, was taking on projects just to keep the lights on inside the company. I think the idea of parking the company inside Disney, where he didn't have to worry about anything but just being Jim Henson, was really attractive to him. Do you think any negative things came out of that for the Henson side of that purchase? Well, I mean, they didn't make the purchase in Jim's lifetime. The deal didn't actually go through until two thousand four, um, and it was a very different deal by that time. I think um without getting into conversations about whether we think disney is handling the muppets correctly or not (laughs) i think what disney learned from negotiating with the henson company and with jim um i think they learned a lot about how not to do it and i think that actually really helped them do it very well moving forward i think when they entered into negotiations with lucasfilm and with pixar and with marvel um, I think all the lessons they had learned from sort of an, a bad, bad's maybe not the right word, but an unsu- it was unsuccessful because Jim died, but it was sort of on the, off the, going off the rails a little bit, um, was, you know, was, there, there's a reason I think now that Lucasfilm still exists, uh, that Marvel still exists, even though they're under the umbrella of Disney. And I think it's because when they were negotiating with the Hensons, Jim was like, look, I still get to exist. 
you know, you don't absorb me and suck me in and take everything. Like I still exist. And the, the, um, what that existence looked like, again, was part of what they were really squabbling over more than anything else. So I, so I think a lot of the lessons they learned from that framed them going forward, which is why I think that they actually, and I know people who are smarter than I am, can argue whether these were done well or not. But I think that really shaped what I think were much better and happier experiences when they brought in some of these other companies later. Hmm. Did you ever get a sense in your research uh, which Muppets Project Jim was proudest of or held like most dear to his heart um it you know it's it's hard to say i think the i think the project he probably loved the most was labyrinth um not muppet project per se but i think that that movie what everybody told me and jane henson was really fabulous and interesting on this was that it looked ex- that was one of the few movies and dark crystal did to some extent but it but everybody said labyrinth looked exactly the way he wanted it to um, that was really Jim's artistic aesthetic, um, which again is very much kind of ahead of its time when you look at it. Um, that movie still hold, I mean, that movie still holds up artistically. It's beautifully filmed and the costumes are like, it still looks like it could have been made today. Mm-hmm. Um, it, and like Jim doesn't get carried away with CGI. What I love Jim is like, he had CGI available and what do he do with it? He used it in the opening credits. I'm like, that was it. <laughs> Um, so, so Labyrinth, I think, is, was a, a hugely important film to him. Dark Crystal was as well. It really paved the way. But that was Jim sort of like really trying to play with and build the technology that he wanted to then keep using moving forward. Um, and so you never really see the technology. Like Dark Crystal feels like tech in a way because it's very beautiful, like almost deliberately beautiful. Whereas Labyrinth doesn't. And it's still got all that same tech in it. So it's like Jim had figured it out by then. And so he's concentrating on the filmmaking. So I think Labyrinth is probably a really important project. Now, the Muppet performers, if I would ask them, the one project that they all, to a man and woman, absolutely lit up over was Emma Dodder's Jug Band Christmas. Uh, yeah. They all, Dave Gold said flat out, he's like, he's like, best project of my life. I mean, they, they all really loved it. They, they knew it was something really special. You know, Michael, Mike Frith, Jim's creative director, um, talking about Paul Williams and that music said, you know, how, how did he know? You know, he he was like, there's just there's something about every song in that piece that's perfect. You know, it's like how did Jim know that was his guy for that. So, um, so I think Emmett's the one that a lot of the performers will say they really love. If you would ask Jim, I'm I'm not really sure. I think for him, it was usually whatever project he was working on right then, more than anything else. Yeah, that makes sense. Always looking forward. Yeah, I think he would be very frustrated with like he would have been frustrated me, with me as like a young fan. Um, so I'm like Sesame Street because I'm way older than you guys. I'm like Sesame Street Generation One. So like I was like two years old when Sesame Street came on. So like Sesame, I was there right when it started, and I was a huge Muppet fan. And like I remember when the Muppet Show came on. So like I followed the Muppets the whole time, and then I went to see Dark Crystal in the theater. And I told Lisa Henson later, I'm like I'm par- I was part of the I was part of the problem. I walked out of Dark Crystal going, I don't get it. I, I don't, I don't get, I don't understand. Where were the Muppets? That wasn't, and poor Jim. Like I was reading the transcripts of every interview he sat for in 1982 after it came down. And everyone's like, where are the Muppets, Jim? Where are the Muppets? And he's, and he's got to explain himself every time. And like, so people like me, as I said, were part of the problem. We were not, we would not let him grow up. Um, we wanted him to keep coming back. And Jim, I think was fine. Continuing to do the Muppets, but you know, I think his attitude was like, for God's sake, let me go off and do some more inter- interesting and cool things. And so that's where you were seeing Dark Crystal, Labyrinth, 
Storyteller, you know, some of these really interesting, beautiful projects. He loved that creature shop where they were building, you know, monsters and things that like he couldn't use in the Muppets. So, so I think it was like yeah, a little creative. I think the Muppets became creatively stifling in the sense that like we were all trying to like hold on, hold him back and wouldn't let him move forward. And I think, again, that was going to be part of that Disney deal that made it so attractive. Um, there were people inside that said, you know, I think Jim might have had the ability to get into the Disney company and say, you know, to use the Simpsons line, smell you later. Um, I don't, I'm not going to do the Muppets. Somebody else can take on the Muppets now. Um, I'll walk away and pass them on. So when people always ask me, what would Jim think of, you know, you know, new performers? I think he'd have been fine. Um, in his lifetime, I think he was willing to make that commitment. Um, the one thing that he didn't, well, there were many things, but one of the things, like as you were talking about, Derek, that he didn't really enjoy in the Disney negotiations was he, he, he felt this way mostly about Jeffrey Katzenberg. He, he, he and Eisner got along great. Like he and Eisner were determined to make it go, but he didn't, he didn't, he didn't really enjoy negotiating with Katzenberg and he really felt Katzenberg didn't get it. Um, you know, I think Katzenberg, Jim was really trying to cut his deals to ensure the Muppet performers were included in it, not just the Muppets themselves. And he could not make Katzenberg understand that distinction that Kermit, that Miss Piggy doesn't exist unless Frank Oz exists with her. Um, so they were trying to buy the toy box, um, but not the performers. So I think Jim was very frustrated, I think, in that aspect of it, in that they didn't quite understand that Muppet performance, even more than puppetry, is about character. And it's about taking years to find and develop those characters. And that was one of the things he really wanted to continue to be involved in, no matter what happened, was in recruitment and training of performers. Um, so that, that was the side of the deal again as well that, you know, he really understood and thought was really important that he thought some of the Disney, you know, suits were kind of out to lunch on, particularly Katzenberg. Everybody kept telling him, go back, go back to Eisner, go back to Eisner. Eisner's the one that'll get this done. But I think Katzenberg in particular really made him angry. Now, later on, Katzenberg sort of stepped in and, and did a lot of productions with the Henson company after Jim died. Uh, but at the time, Jim was very frustrated with him because again, he just didn't get it. He just didn't understand the art of performance. I would just like to point out that this is the third interview in a row we have done where the people have complained about Jeffrey Katzenberg. We talked to the directors of The Little Mermaid, who said that Jeffrey <laughs> Katzenberg almost removed a popular song. And then we talked to the director of a Goofy movie, who said that he almost did not cast Bill Farmer as Goofy because of Jeffrey Katzenberg. So funny. Yeah, I think when he went off to form SKG, people were like, <laughs> like, I don't... I don't think people were broken up about that. <laughs> well, and wrapping this up, I just want to ask you real quick. Have you seen Muppet Vision 3D? I assume you have. Oh, yeah. Yeah. I, I love it. And again, um, that was Jim playing with, the, you know, what, what Jim loved was that technology. Um, you know, people didn't make 3D moves that looked like that at the time. Uh, the only other thing you had that was close was Captain EO. <laughs> and Captain EO was more about kind of the effects you know, in the theater, a lot of the, you know, the fireworks inside the studio, inside the theater, things like that, whereas Jim really made them work together. It, it wasn't just, for him, it wasn't a novelty act. It was uh, an integral part of the show. And and Jim understood that more. But I mean, but the, I still remember the, the very first time you see Muppet Vision, you know, like when Sweetums comes running out at the end, like, the, I still remember, like, the place just erupted. People just... <laughs> crazy for that because <laughs> you were expecting to kind of see puppets pop up and you were like well that's an animatronic bean bunny so but like when sweetums runs out i mean how great is that you know and some poor person's got to do that every 35 minutes um during the day actually jim henson's son um john 
um, was the first Sweetums performer and trained a lot of the performers in that. Because again, that was you know it was that's an important part of the show. You need to understand how to perform. You can't just have the puppet. You need the puppeteer. Um, so I, I think Muppet Vision is fantastic. I, what's the status on it? I keep hearing different things. Is it still there or is it gone now? It is still there in, uh, in Florida, and right. it is no longer in California. Gotcha. So we, yeah. I we mean, have hung on know, to it here at Hollywood Studios. There was a big scare about it because uh, the big overhaul of Hollywood Studios within the last few years with the addition of Star Wars Galaxy's Edge, uh, the Muppets kind of landed right in that same real estate so there was some yeah. some concern about that their attraction would be would be replaced but uh you know the muppets have a way of just sticking out don't they i mean you know sticking well, through. you know and 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 that's another that's another thing that's heartbreaking when you read the biography is it's like jim you know they were going to give jim basically a whole corner of the park all to himself and just think of like the crazy stuff he could have done over there. It's like when you see some of the, you know, the rough drawings for, you know, he had like the, the great Muppet movie ride, which was all about filmmaking. And as Jim thought it was so funny because all the advice was going to be wrong. You know, <laughs> like, you know, like that was the kind of stuff he wanted to do because he loved the dark rides. His favorite dark ride was actually the, uh, the River of Time, the Mexico one. Oh, yeah. he, that was his favorite ride. But he loved those dark rides, and they were having a blast designing dark rides, and you know they were designing fun restaurants. And Jim loved the Imagineers because they never said no. You know, he, he there was a great story where he and Mike Frith were walking through the park, and you know looked up, and I think it might have been Frith who said something about you know it'd be great if 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 there was a facade up so we couldn't see that light pole, and the Imagineers were like, when, when do you need it? Like they never, <laughs> like it was nothing ever impossible. He loved working with those Imagineers. So that you know the the the. The what might have been for that part of the park is just just heartbreaking over there. And I and again, you see it in, in Muppet Vision. I mean, just how much fun that is, and the fact that it is still there, you know, almost 30, 30 years after his death now, and still fun and still entertaining. And I hope they keep it around. It's you know, it, it's hard to update. Can can they update it? I don't I don't know. But you know, I think Bill Prady, who created Big Bang, I think he was one of the writers that Jim worked with on that one. You know, when Bill was like twenty one years old or something. Oh wow. You know, there was a lot of fun and a lot of creative stuff going. You know, even the waiting area, typical of the Muppets, you know, that's where the famous a net full of jello is hanging over your head in there, like all these weird inside jokes. Like that's very much the Jim Henson and the Muppet sensibility in there. Yeah, so yeah. Sure. I think we would have had a blast. And, and that's the hardest part. It's just, just you know, when I was going through the, the folders and you, you didn't see a lot, but, you know, there were notes being passed around for just going over there to meet with those Imagineers and, and, it was so interesting, like, he would go over there, and even though he's Jim Henson, it was like, you know, it was like entering the CIA building. Like, it was, like, very secure when you went in there. <laughs> you know? But as soon as he got with the Imagineers, it was just like, all bets are off. They just had a blast. So I would have loved to have known what they would have done with that. Uh, that that's the part that just tears you up. Yeah. Wrapping things up, final question. You've spent hours upon hours upon hours researching the life of Jim Henson and his legacy. What's the greatest gift that you've taken away and learned from his life? You know, I think the, the biggest inspiration out of Jim is, is, is he, he's actually what you expect him to be. Um, and there's something inspiring about that. You know, it's like, for, for some reason, and I don't know if this is an American thing or not, uh, you know, it's it's like we felt the need that Mr. Rogers, remember, there's always rumors like, well, he was a sniper in Vietnam. Like, we've we've always got to find something that taints our heroes. Mm -hmm. 
because somehow that's what makes them human instead of the fact that they're wonderfully creative and inspire everybody else around them. That's not adequate enough to be human. And, uh, and I, said, I said to Frank Oz, boy, like Sinatra always told me not to name drop. Um, I said to Frank, <laughs> I said, it's, it's really disappointing when people are disappointed when their idols don't disappoint them. Mm. Um, because people would say, well, Jim, you know, you've got to be whitewashing Jim. Because people genuinely loved him. And everybody, everybody knew that he was unfaithful. And everybody had a story. But it was, it just, I don't want to say it didn't matter, but it was one of those things like people were able to be like, that's part of the whole man. Um, and there's, there's something genuinely inspiring about the fact that someone can be genuinely inspiring and genuinely want to do good. And, you know, you, these great quotes from Jim that he just tosses off because he means it. You know, things like, uh, when I was young, my ambition was to leave the world a better place for my having been here. I mean, you, you can't sum it up any better than that. And, and he did. Um, and that's the one thing that I, and it even gives me goosebumps talking about it because everybody I talked to, we're, I mean, still in love with him. And like, still, like, we're just brokenhearted that he was gone 30 years later. It's incredible. Um, just the power of that personality and the power of that positivity. That, to me, is what's so inspiring. Somebody who says, you know, it, it's easy for Jim to say, it, it's, you know, everybody go out and have fun and love what you do. Well, we, we don't all get to play with the Muppets all day, so that's tough for some of us. But, like, that, you know, that was, Jim's, that was Jim's life. He was like, I don't understand why people don't love to work. Work's the best thing in the world. <laughs> um, but, you know, Jim was lucky enough to find and then follow his bliss, and we all benefited because of that. I mean, that's an awesome place to be. Brian J. Jones, the book is Jim Henson, the, bio the biography. And uh, you've also done, as you said, biographies of Dr. Seuss, Washington Irving, George Lucas. And uh, can you tell us what's next for you? I assume you've got I, another one. No, I was telling somebody, I was, doing a, I was doing the George Lucas talk show last night because it was May the 4th. Uh, which is a bunch of comedians, and they're absolutely brilliant. And one of them improvs as George Lucas, which is so funny. Like, he plays it absolutely straight, which, like, threw me. Um, but somebody said, oh, you know, you've written about um, people that I love that were so important in my childhood. And I said, well, then give me another one, because uh, I don't know who I'm doing next. So you tell me, who do you love? Uh, and I'll do that next. I just, I just don't know at this point. Well, you know, uh, you've done Jim Henson. I feel like Walt Disney's been done pretty much, Mr. Rogers. What about Bob Ross? I would read a Bob Ross. <laughs> <laughs> I don't know if I could live with Bob Ross for four years, though. That's the whole thing. It, it, it's a, he's too quiet for me, almost. I need something a little bit louder, which is why, although Lucas is pretty quiet, but uh, Bob Ross is so, so calm and reassuring. I almost don't know what to do with that. Well, whatever it is, I'm sure it'll be great. Uh, thank you so much for taking very the time kind. to speak to us. Uh, thank you, guys. No, this was awesome. Fantastic. Thank you, guys. <laughs> If you're a fan of our show, then you know we are primarily a Disney Parks podcast. So as we are talking about the Muppets, we are going to look specifically at their connection to Walt Disney World. We are going to list 10 experiences, attractions, shows, restaurants, etc., uh, that the Muppets have been involved in at the Orlando parks. Things you might have experienced or might still experience on a Walt Disney World vacation. And number one on our list is actually not an attraction. This debuted before the Muppets actually came to the parks. And it was the special that we mentioned earlier 
the Muppets at Walt Disney World. Now, I know you two are talking about this over on Disney Coast to Coast. I did not even know this existed until this week. Yeah, I knew of it for many years. I didn't know that a full version was available online, which uh, is what Jeremy and I watched and we talk about on on the other episode. But yeah, I've always seen clips of it. And it was one of those things I'm like, okay, it's Disney MGM Studios. It's the Muppets. This is right up my alley. Why have I not seen this? So I was very excited to finally see it and have a conversation about it. I have heard about this, um, that this was a thing. I've heard people talk about it. I've seen clips of it. It's one of those that when you watch the special, you'll be like, oh, okay. I remember seeing that YouTube clip or uh, I remember that. There's actually the, the intro is opened by Michael Eisner in typical Michael Eisner fashion. Hi, I'm Michael Eisner. And uh, there's actually a pretty funny blooper reel out there of uh, Michael and Fozzie and Fozzie's mother trying to get uh, the opening as Michael keeps flubbing his lines. So there's definitely bits and pieces that have been out there. But yeah, I was surprised to see that it's uh, exists in, in its entirety out there. Yeah, so it is out there on Vimeo and other websites. So be sure to check it out. It aired May 6th. 1990 on NBC as part of the Magical World of Disney series. Uh, Interesting that it aired just 10 days before Jim Henson passed away. Uh, But you can watch the whole special on there, and then be sure to hear Jeremy and Jeff's deep dive on this uh, about 45-minute special. Uh, But that takes us to number two on our list. Uh, Number two, we're going to talk about a thing called Muppet Studios, which may not sound familiar because it never actually got built at Walt Disney World in its entirety. This was going to be a land in Disney MGM Studios that was devoted to the Muppets. It was something Jim Henson and Michael Eisner were sort of planning together back when they were talking about uh, making a partnership between Disney and and Jim Henson Company. And this land was going to be adjacent to the streets of America, which is where Muppet Vision is now. And Muppet Vision was part of the land, but there were so many other things that ultimately did not come to be. And I'm going to list a few of them. There was going to be a restaurant called the Great Gonzo's Pizza Pandemonium Parlor, which just rolls off the tongue. (laughs) And it was going to feature some real Muppets artifacts and costumes. Think... Uh, one of Jeff's favorites, Planet Hollywood, except Muppets. Yes, yes. <laughs> and I, I, this is the thing that I have trouble visualizing. Food was going to be delivered by audio animatronic rats on tracks. Yeah, th- I've done deep dives uh, of research into this whole Muppet Studio thing, and they had some pretty incredible stuff planned. And, you know, supposedly the reason it never happened was because of Jim Henson's death. And it's just so sad. And I I know you'll touch on some other things that were supposed to be there. But, I mean, there was some epic, epic stuff planned, including, you know, another attraction. And it wasn't just a 3D movie. So uh, it breaks my heart that we didn't get this because it's pretty incredible. I know. Uh, My favorite thing about this, which is so Muppets, is that there were going to be constant sounds of explosions coming from the kitchen, and I can totally imagine that restaurant. And later, we'll talk about a restaurant that did come to be that's not nearly as Muppets as I would like it to be. Uh, But this pizza pandemonium parlor sounded like it was going to be very Muppety and very zany and very fun. Uh, Over next door, there was going to be a sort of outdoor show called Swedish Chef's 
cooking school, and he was going to have a little comedic show, I'm guessing, that ran a few times throughout the day. But the attraction Jeff mentioned uh, was going to be called something like The Great Muppet Movie Ride. Uh, Jim Henson, in a short video promoting MGM Studios, said it was going to be, quote, a backstage ride explaining how movies were shot and all the information is wrong. And I love the concept art that shows all of the Muppets inside a scene directly taken taken from a Frankenstein film, which gives you an idea of how the ride would kind of be. Like each scene, you would go into an actual scene from a real movie, but the Muppets are in place of the humans. And it just looked brilliant. Yeah, it was supposed to be a counterpart of the Great Movie Ride. So it was essentially going to be the Great Movie Ride, but with Muppets, which... Sounds amazing. I mean, still. I mean, still build it. I would all be. I'd be for that. I mean, I am curious though if it if it had ever gotten built. I wonder if it would have outlived the great movie ride. There is something very timeless about Muppets placing themselves into classic film scenes. You know, I mean, those scenes haven't changed. The Muppets haven't changed. That's the great thing about the Muppets, and I always go back to, and I'm sorry, I know we'll touch upon this later, but the Muppets present great moments in American history. I I just remember hearing that news and being like, what? That doesn't make sense. And then when I saw it, I was like, of course it makes sense. You can fit the Muppets into almost everything as long as you keep their sensibility in place. And their sensibility can fit in almost anything because the minute you put it in there, it like... It not making sense is what makes sense about it. Does that make sense? <laughs> <Yes>. <laughs> Wait a yes. second. Hold on. Let me get a piece of paper and write that down. <laughs> yeah. And the nice thing about this, you could have updated it. So I'm picturing, you know, Muppet movies, uh, you know, kind of attraction in 2019 would have the Muppets in, in a Marvel film or the Muppets in a Star Wars film. You know, you could keep making it relevant in a sense and because the Muppets are timeless. Well, the Muppets have also always been parodying movies. Do you remember, like, I definitely had at least one of the the calendars, the annual, you know, the yearly calendar where each month was a movie poster parodied by the Muppets, like a Forest Green instead of Forest Gump, and, uh, oh gosh, there were, instead of Pulp Fiction, it was uh, Pig Fiction, I think, or something <laughs> like that. Well, even like the pigs in space has always been, you know, mm. a, a, a play on the sci-fi. So, oh, I love that. Yeah, I think that's the most tragic of the ones we didn't get. Uh, but let's talk about what we what we did get. Of course, the whole land wasn't built, but we got the Muppets Fountain that you can still see with Miss Piggy as the Statue of Liberty. We still got the uh, gift shop called Stage One Company Store, which is modeled after the Happiness Hotel in the Great Muppet Caper. And we got the flagship attraction one year after Jim Henson passed away. It opened on May 16th, 1991. We're celebrating its anniversary this week. And it was uh, the 3D show, Muppet Vision 3D. Um, I assume you guys both still like this attraction. (laughs) I do very much. Okay. (laughs) No, I really do. I'm sad that I'm sad that it's not a Disney California adventure anymore. Mm. Uh, And, and, oh, and I don't know if I told you this, Derek. Slight tangent again, sorry. But they fixed Donald's butt in Mickey's Philharmagic at Disney California Adventure. 
I heard this. Like, it actually falls now. It's an actual animatronic now. Like, he kicks his legs and stuff, and the curtain falls for more than two seconds. Like, it's properly (laughs) done now. That was definitely the biggest disappointment of opening week of PhilharMagic there in California. Uh, Try, like, opening six months or so. Like, that thing was not working properly for a very long time. So (laughs) I, I saw that one time, and I was like, oh my gosh. I do I do still love this show. I think it's a little bit long, but I think it's such a great blend of so many different elements. Like, you actually see Statler and Waldorf in the balcony. You know, like real Muppets. Then you see some on screen. Uh, I think the Penguin anim- audio animatronic band is brilliant. So many things to love. Sweden uh, shows up. Yes! Sweden shows up uh, double. <laughs> Are you familiar with this? Uh, yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. Finale? Yeah. That has to be crazy. Yeah. <laughs> because he's out front as a costume character, but he's also appearing on screen at the same time. Does he still appear in the theater? Because I thought at one point I had heard they actually removed that track. No, he still does. Um, yeah. At least the last time I, I wrote it, which is, it's been a, a few months, but okay. uh, he still shows up in the middle. And then at the very end, when, when Kermit is sitting on the fire truck and, you know, all the people and Muppets and things are peeking into the theater from the broken wall. Spoiler. Uh, Sweetums comes out again. And yes, it's always bothered me that there's two Sweetums. But I'd like to think that the one on screen is like his twin brother, uh, Sourums. Oh, Sourums. You did not. That was really bad. <laughs> <laughs> I've seen Sweetums appear during the pre-show. Like everybody's standing in that lobby. And all of a sudden he comes uh, uh, below the TV yes. screens. And everybody's kind of like... a. Did- was it, did you see that? Was Sweetums just in this room? I think it depends yeah. on how much uh, how much coffee Sweetums has had that day, <laughs> how much energy he wants to burn. Yeah. Now, the show has gone through a few minor changes, and that's on the outside of the building. And, Jeff, I want to know your opinion on this. We lost the Kermit signage in favor of a sort of theater marquee, and we lost the hot air balloon. Yeah, th- this is horrible. Uh, the, I know the ho- the hot air balloon went away because of sightline issues with Star Wars Galaxy's Edge. So I understand it. That makes sense. But it wasn't just like that whole little area. Like the fountain now has less Muppet characters. As you mentioned, the Muppet Vision 3D sign is gone. And they now have like what looks like a really cheap temporary marquee. The paintings on the sides of the buildings that were all Muppet-centric are now painted over just, you know, that brown soundstage color. So they've taken away a lot from this area, and there's always that conversation of, oh, it's going away, it's going away. And I just try to enjoy it as much as I can because, you know, it is officially gone from Disney California Adventure. Although I like to think that Statler and Waldorf are still up in that balcony commenting to themselves about <laughs> Mickey's PhilharMagic each time it plays. But uh, but yeah, I, every time I go to Disney's Hollywood Studios, I definitely experience it. And I'll be honest, still gets laughs out of me, like genuine laughs. Yeah, I agree. And that theater, like it has no right having a theater that nice. I mean, it's it, it's the theater from The Muppet Show is what it's trying to emulate and that theater on the Muppet show is beautiful and uh, what did I just see I just saw they recreated oh they recreated that theater digitally for the new Muppet Babies show for some episode I think that aired back in December or something and you want to know something crazy I've actually I've quote-unquote been backstage at the Muppet show because they were shooting the 2011 movie uh here in Hollywood and I snuck on the soundstage and I like 
realized they were shooting. Steve Whitmire was there performing. Rizzo and a bunch of rats were around. But I like turned around and saw that whole backstage area, and then I saw those purple curved awnings and stuff, and I was like, "Holy crap! I'm on the set of the Muppet Show. This is insane!" Oh, so. Wow. Well, Muppet Vision 3D was actually not the first Muppet attraction we got. It's certainly the one that has lasted the longest. But Jeff, for number three, I'm going to throw it over to you because I have—I I just get the feeling that you know more about this early Disney MGM Studios attraction than I do. Yes, I am old enough to have experienced this in person. <laughs> I, it, That's not what I meant. <laughs> no, but, but I mean, it's the reality. But no, back in 19... You know, I, back in 1990, May 25th, 1990, they opened a show called Here Come the Muppets. And this was really the first permanent uh, appearance of the Muppets in Disney and Jam Studios. It was in the space that has now, for many years, been home to Voyage of the Little Mermaid. And it was basically a musical review. It was really fun. I remember seeing it m- numerous times as a kid and really enjoying it quite a bit. Uh, it wasn't, you know, it's an indoor theater, as most people probably know. And it, it was a full production value thing. The thing that was weird about it is this is the time that I remember the Muppets no longer being puppets in the Disney parks and instead being like full on mascot Mickey Mouse type of characters. And I even remember as a kid being like, okay, definitely want to get my photo taken with that, but why are we going this route? Because I've said for years, like the Muppets should perform on Broadway. And I mean like the Muppet Muppets, not Mm -hmm. mascot Muppets, but you can easily do a stage show with the puppets. Uh, I've seen many, I've seen the, Muppets perform on stage many times and it works brilliantly. So I'm not sure why they chose to go this route. And that would probably be my biggest complaint about the show. But other than that, like it was fun Muppet centric stuff. You even had like a Lily Tomlin appearance on video screen and stuff. And uh, it was great. Have you guys ever watched video of this at all? I did. I watched it this weekend. Um, I like the inclusion of Fozzie singing, make them laugh from singing in the rain. Uh, But I do have Mm -hmm. to say seeing the walk around characters is jarring. At first. I mean, there's no way around it. But let's take a moment to recognize and appreciate the fact, in my memory, this could be incorrect factually, but it is the first time in my memory seeing an articulated character in a Disney park, which we've, you know, make a big deal of today. What was it, five, six, seven, eight years ago when Articulated Mickey became a thing and people were like losing their minds over it? Remember, Kermit, Fozzie, Gonzo, Miss Piggy, all of them were articulated with different technology, but articulated nonetheless in this stage show, which is kind of cool. That definitely stuck out to me, and I actually wrote that down because at first I assumed their mouths were not going to move. I thought, how is that technology... How There's no way it goes all the way back to 1990. And you're right, it is different. Like, Kermit's mouth... It's puppetry. Does... Oh, okay. It's puppetry versus... Yeah, it's puppetry versus animatronic. Oh, I didn't realize that, because the mouths... <sighs> They still don't move quite as much as the Muppet characters themselves do, which I think is odd. Um, So I feel like they're trying to make up for it with really, really big gestures with their arms and flapping their arms and everything to make up for the small mouth movements. I don't know. It's, it's, It's odd. It was just really odd to see. But as a show, enjoyable. Yeah, Jeremy, did you watch it at all? You know, I've only seen clips of this. I haven't seen the whole show. Um... I can never get past the fact that the Muppets are not proportionally correct. And I, it's the same complaint I have about like uh, 
Olaf and those kind of things. Like, it's just weird seeing a character that is three feet tall when he stands next to Elsa in the film, and then in real life, he's taller than Elsa. And I understand there's logistics and things, but I think those things could be worked out a little better. But that's just my opinion. Yeah, and like I said before, I feel like the Muppets are the easiest to deal with that. Like, Olaf, I get it. Like, that's a little bit difficult to create, unless you're using some serious illusion work. But the Muppets, I'm like, you had the puppets. I mean, puppets on stage is a thing that exists. So it it was a weird choice. My guess is they just wanted them for parades and stuff, but we'll even get into that later. Like, the puppets would have worked as puppets it yeah, was an I was odd choice say, they, they learned their lesson eventually but yeah these these big oversized puppets are or walk around characters are, are a little jarring to see i think for me being being bunny more so than any of the others it was like oh <laughs> that whoa he's real big he's big big that's bunny. Big yeah. bunny. <laughs> oh that's a honey i blew up the kid reference <laughs> oh yeah just for you jeff it all comes back to rick moranis uh, but Jeff, so much. <laughs> it might have it might come back to what you said about Steve Whitmire. How, yeah, you can find people who can move. Well, I could, never mind. They'd be doing it to the soundtrack. I was going to say that the, the yeah, tricky part say, is they'd be lip syncing. Yeah, yeah, you're totally right. Never mind. I was going to say the tricky part was finding the voice and the talented puppeteer, but you'd only need the puppeteer. Huh? Yeah, I am curious though. And the well, we'll get to that later. Forget I said anything. Uh, okay, then take us to number four on our list. Yeah, so number four was actually, kind of, it's basically the same as number three, but moved outdoors. So what happened, from what I recollect, is they needed to close that uh, Here Come the Muppet show in that theater. I'm assuming, I don't know, no, it couldn't have, it may have been for Voyage of the Little Mermaid. They may have been needing that space. Did Voyage open in like 91? I think that makes sense. 90 or 91, right? Uh it had to have been after September 2nd, 1991, but it could have been that year. Yeah. Yeah. So I, I think it may be 92. I don't know. But I think it closed the Here Come the Muppets closed so that Mermaid could move in. So what they did was they essentially took the same characters and did an outdoor version of a show. They called it Muppets on Location, Day of Swine and Roses. This ran from September 16th, 1991 through 1994. There may have even been multiple versions of this, but it was basically an abridged version of a stage show with the Muppets, the full costume characters still, doing uh, musical numbers as they do. And it was fun. I remember seeing it, but I I do remember as a kid kind of being disappointed by it because I remembered Here Come the Muppets. And I'm like, oh, well, this is definitely a downgrade. Like, Mm. they've been ousted to performing out in the hot sun. Like, fry, frog, fry. (laughs) (laughs) But I love this concept, though. I love that concept because it fits that early studio's feel of, hey, we just happened to walk upon the Muppets and they're filming... A, a TV show or a movie. Yeah, I agree. The The thing that stuck out to me about this, I watched it this weekend. First of all, it's very long. I was like, I cannot imagine standing out there for 25 minutes and watching this show. But because it's set up like a movie set, there are moments where if the Electric Mayhem is performing, the other Muppets, some of them are walking around greeting the guests and taking pictures. There's, I saw one clip where someone is, Electric Mayhem is over to the side performing, but you see Miss Piggy and a character attendant, and he's pretending to like do her hair and retouch up her makeup 
uh, like not backstage, but off camera. So you can see both things happening at the same time as if you really are on a working movie set. I thought that was kind of unique. Yeah, I, I mean, it fit perfectly into in what Disney MGM Studios used to be. I just felt like it was da- the production value was downgraded. Mm. You know, there wasn't fog, there wasn't lights, and I mean, there may have been, but it wasn't like the control of it inside of a theater. Um, that's all. I still enjoyed it. I still saw it multiple times, but it was definitely to me. It felt like, oh, we need this bigger theater for something else. So, what are we going to do with these Muppets? Yeah, and and they did something, and it worked, and it totally worked, and it ran for a good length of time. So good for them. Yeah, especially since Here Come the Muppets only lasted a year, and you made all of these walk around Muppet costumes. It's like let's get some use out of these. Yeah, for sure. Speaking of, so yeah, they also used these walk around characters for meet and greets and such. But there was also this Disney Stars and Motor Cars Parade, which ran from October first, two thousand one, to March eighth of two thousand and eight. So for a very long time, and basically there were a lot of different themed cars with characters in them waving. It was it was a pretty uh, low scale parade, I would say. But there was a Muppet themed vehicle with Kermit and Piggy inside of it in their full costume characters. And I, I, in fact, if I remember correctly, there's a photo, of course, it wouldn't have been during the run of this parade, but there's like a, a similar photo of Jim Henson between the two of them riding down the street in a car. Aww. So yeah, it's a nice little throwback. But th- so these costume characters had been a lo- around for a long time. It's just they started using them for shows and performances and parades. And I love the fact that they had a spot in this parade and they weren't forgotten. And there were, you know, full on stars at Disney MGM Studios. Yeah, and uh, I watched a video today. Sweetums actually is sort of the precursor to the float itself. So he walks around on his feet and greets people before Kermit and Piggy come by. Um, But my thing about this, this closed after my first visit with you, Jeremy. Uh, We didn't see this, did we? I have very vague memories of seeing this, but I think we only saw it because we happened to be walking by at the same time Ah. that it was going by. I, this is a parade I don't believe that we went out of our way to see. And I think it was because it was like, it was around our first visit and we just didn't have enough time. Yeah. And because I remember that what I remember is walking by people watching the parade, seeing the cars with the characters and saying something like, hey, what's this? And Matt was like, oh, that's the afternoon parade, but we got to get over here. You know? Yep. That sounds about right. <laughs> oh, man. <laughs> Screw Matt. <Man>. Yeah. <laughs> Parades are a priority. No, That's true, I do. but it was it was our first trip, and at that time we didn't know that it would be, you know, at that point it was a once in a lifetime trip. So. True, <laughs> and it was August in Orlando in the afternoon, so I'm guessing we were like, nope, we're good. And if you were going to miss a parade, it's not a bad parade to miss. Like it's you know it's fun, but it's not like the greatest parade there ever was or anything like that. But and I do think it was seasonal at certain points and stuff, so. Um, maybe, I I don't know, maybe it wasn't even there when you were there, but unless you specifically remember this style of parade. Well, what I, what I remember too is it was like they were driven, a lot of the characters were driven in like, uh, really nice convertible cars. Am I having that right? Yeah. Yeah. And so that makes me wonder, did Disney own these cars? Did they lease these cars? Like, 
Well, the convertibles looked like, you know, the Aladdin section, the front of the car was Genie's head and stuff. So they were all convertible cars that were designed to look like whatever characters were in them. Like I remember a Star Wars one looked like a land speeder and stuff like that. So I certainly hope Disney owned them or else there's some rental place out there with some very unique cars. <laughs> I would love to own that. I, if there's a used car lot that has the Aladdin <laughs> car, the, let me know. Yeah, that'd be great. Uh, the, the Kermit and Miss Piggy did look pretty generic. It looked like a maybe a 1940s car straight out of Bugsy Malone or something, except on top it had this blimp that said the Muppets on it. So that obviously set it apart. Yeah. 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 Some of them were definitely more themed than others, but it was, you know, it was it was an inexpensive parade. It, you know, it was more it, it was closer to a character cavalcade than a full-fledged parade. It was kind of like what the rainy day parades are now. You know, yeah. it's like oh, it's raining, put them on a vehicle and drive them down the street, you know? Yeah, so. I would just like to point out that by my count, except for a very short parade we're going to talk about later, this was the only time the Muppets have appeared in a parade. And I feel like it would be so easy to do now. Like, put one of them on one of the big gifts that comes down the street during Move It, Shake It, Mouse Could Dance It. Uh, well, first of all, we don't use those giant character costumes anymore which is a good thing no no no. i know but you could easily have uh, uh just oh, kermit, kermit as a muppet on there yeah i have fi been fighting for a long time i genuinely want because i'm tired of our christmas parade here i want a muppet christmas carol parade which i know is very specific and basically would be made for me and 10 other people <laughs> but I think a Muppet Christmas Carol Parade would be awesome, and it has that very Dickens feel, classic Christmas kind of thing, which is what Main Street USA feels like, you know, and I think it would be amazing. That'd be so great. yes, I, I would I would love to see the Muppets get a parade. Maybe we should just turn the whole move it shake it into like the the move it IPA. Not IPA, <laughs> that's a beer. Uh like move it shake it IP parade and you have Mickey and you have Kermit and then you can have Captain America and Yoda. No, I hate this. I hate <laughs> this idea so much. All the no. new Disney intellectual properties and maybe even like a random giraffe for the National Geographic. Oh, gosh. Nope. Nope. And, a, and a football player for ESPN. ESPN, yes. There <laughs> nope. you go. Hating all this. Or you could do all Muppets and just call it Move It Muppet It. There you go. <laughs> I, I honestly do think the Muppets could do something very cool, whether it's a parade or a street party or something like that. I, I think they lend themselves to something like that. Yeah. Like, I think, and I, Jeremy and I touched on this a little bit on the other episode, but there was a, there's talk for a while of the Muppets taking over Disneyland while Mickey and his friends went on vacation. And the stuff they were going to do was insane. They were going to paint the Matterhorn green and they, they had all these plans it was going to be like a six-month period or something, and, and it never happened. And as much as I get why, because I'll tell you, if I was visiting Disneyland for the first and only time, and that's what I got, I would not be happy. But I would also kill to witness that. Yeah. I think it would be amazing. That should be a nighttime event, frankly. Oh, totally. How fascinating. I've never heard that. They could do pigs in Space Mountain. There you go. <laughs> oh, Yes. That's, That's actually genius. I, I love that. <laughs> You're welcome. Pigs in <laughs> space. Mountain. Mountain. All right. So that was number five. Jeremy, take us to number six, because this is something we got to experience. Yes. Number six is the Muppet Mobile Lab. Uh, this was a uh, part of Disney's Living Character in, uh, Initiative, um, which included things 
like Lucky the Dinosaur or also the, um, which you kind of see the technology at Monsters, Inc. Laugh Floor or um, Turtle Talk with Crush. This sort of idea that characters would interact with guests through um, real dialogue, if that makes sense. Um, whether it's through a screen or in this case with the Muppet Mobile Lab, this was a uh, animatronic that actually was in the park fully uh, realized not behind a curtain or on a stage but interacting amongst the guests and uh yeah it was we, we saw it one day at epcot and uh it's really kind of cool to see it really is remarkable i i assume it's a segue uh technology um it just seems it's like a tiny rocket ship on two wheels so that makes me think it moves like a Segway moves. But there is something th- about being able to walk around the whole thing and think, how is this fully interacting and improvising with guests on the spot? In fact, I think I have pictures, Derek. Derek was chosen as one of the volunteers. Yeah, all I, rem- I don't remember what they asked me. The only thing I remember is they said, what's your name? I said, Derek. They said, what? I said, Derek. They said, Darren? <laughs> and I said, <laughs> Derek. Uh, I remember there were spray jets. I remember it ends with a big confetti cannon. It's just delightful. Yeah, and for those who don't know, it's it's Beaker and uh, and uh, Doctor Honeydew, uh, Buns and Honeydew, and they are on this like bike looking thing. And there is a cast member with them that has the microphone. And like you said, they kind of interact with the guests. And it's probably what maybe five ten minute show. Yeah, yeah. Have you ever seen a breakdown or even video of it? Because that is tragic. Oh, no. (laughs) No. It just, like, nosedives. It goes 60 to zero in a half a second and just, like, boom, plunges into the ground. (laughs) no. (laughs) Hey, we all have bad days. That's right. As far as I know, this does not happen anymore, but it was running seasonally as, as recently as 2018, I think. Yeah, it's. Uh, I never got to witness this in person, and it's funny because the last time I was at Epcot, which would have been April of 2019, I was uh, like waiting to see it, and you know, the, it was never on a schedule, and it kind of had a schedule, but also cast members were like hesitant to share times because I guess it was fairly inconsistent. So I never did get to witness this one in person. I did see some of the other character initiative uh, figures do their thing. But this one I never did, and it's a bummer because I am such a Muppet fan, and I would have loved to. And hopefully it'll be back someday. I have heard things that it's been seen in dumpsters backstage, but I hope that's not true. I don't know. I I think I loved it because of all the ones we've talked about, except for maybe Muppet Vision 3D. This was the first time you saw the Muppets as they were intended to be. You know, like exactly how you see them on your screen. To scale, yes. Yeah, yeah. You you want to hear something very interesting about some of these living character things or some characters is, I mean, it's no secret that Disney outsources stuff a lot more than they'll tell people uh, as far as all different areas. And the Wally uh, living character and the R2-D2 are not owned or created by Walt Disney Imagineering. It is an outside company that brings these characters in. The one I just saw at Pixar night at uh, Disney California Adventure, I was like chatting with the controller and stuff. And he's like, yeah, you yeah, know, I, I don't work for Disney. They hire me. And I'm just like, what? Like, that's insanity to me. It's the same with uh, Push the Trash Can that used to be around in Disneyland. Yeah. And uh, the Coco Puppet at Mexico. 
those are all outside companies that come in and do that. I just don't understand that. I, I, I mean, if it were a one-time thing, I would get it. But that doesn't make sense to me as to why they wouldn't want to own these things. And sometimes it's cheaper, I guess, in the long run. And then the next thing uh, on our list is from 2010. And this was the give a day, get a day um, campaign. Now, let me say, as a Disney fan, it always makes me chuckle. The various things that the general public latches onto and still believes is the gospel truth. And maybe it had to be in 09 or, or 11. It, it was around this same time as this campaign, the birthday celebration year where you got free admission on your birthday. Do you guys recall this? Of course. Yeah, of course. I still meet people that believe you get in free to the parks on your birthday. And I'm like, no, that was that was a one-time thing 10 years ago. Uh, so I'm surprised this one hasn't stuck around either. But they, the campaign was headed up by the Muppets for their marketing. And it, it revolved around this idea of volunteering and giving back to various communities. And so basically, if you went to these registered community activities, some of them were like Habitat for Humanity or trash pickups or any kind of volunteering thing. And you could verify that you were there and participated for that day. Then you got a free one day admission ticket to Walt Disney World. And I was just talking to our friend Steven about this the other day. And he said he did get the voucher for one free admission. And he was able to upgrade it to an annual pass. Like they allowed him to do that. So he only had to pay the difference. And he reminded me that the the uh, the campaign was supposed to last all year because they thought we're giving out one million free days that will surely last 12 months. And within a month or, or no, by early March, the full allotment was committed. And that was the end of the campaign. I do remember that as well, that, yeah, it was it was up to a certain amount and. People took advantage. Hey, free Disney days. We are not letting that go by. Of course they did. And I don't know the specifics, but I'm guessing the volunteering was not a huge commitment you had to make. Oh, I'll, well, I did it all. So I'll tell you all about it. Uh, so first with the free birthday and the give a day, get a Disney day campaign, I was an annual pass holder. And so when I did them, they actually gave us gift cards with the amount of money on it worth what a ticket purchase would be. So I essentially got those gift cards and held on to them until I renewed my annual pass. So that was great yeah. uh, in both cases. But I will say I actually did Habitat for Humanity, and I was kind of disappointed. And it's a great cause, so I'm not talking crap about Habitat for Humanity. But these organizations were so overwhelmed by volunteers and I remember signing up for Habitat for Humanity because I was like this is something I actually want to kind of get into and see what it's all about and you know not just do it this one day for this Disney ticket and I just remember at least that organization being so overwhelmed by the amount of volunteers like they didn't really have anything for us to do and they're like yeah go, go sweep this up for four hours and we'll give you your voucher sort of thing and I was like well can I help a little more and it's like no just go go to Disneyland and so I was like all right well no wonder they ran out of vouchers by March. Yeah, it was crazy. I remember I had to go to a whole meeting. Like, there was a, you know, a Habitat for Humanity meeting, and the room we were in was just, like, filled to the rosters, and, like, they, they were just overwhelmed by the amount of people volunteering. It's kind of like, you know, when Thanksgiving comes around and everybody wants to volunteer at a soup kitchen, and they're like, 
this is beautiful and wonderful, but we could really use your help all year long, yeah. not just today. And we can't really use all the volunteers that want to volunteer today. And that's kind of what it was. So great sentiment uh, and a great ad campaign. And during it, there was a pre-parade float that I think was actually, it was like a float designed specifically for this purpose. And Kermit and Piggy were on it. And it was like the puppets, Kermit and Piggy. And it was awesome. So I was really happy to see that. They were wearing like construction outfits because it was this idea that they were volunteering and building. I remember like wood pieces and hammers and that, and like hard hats and denim jeans, that kind of stuff. <laughs> As opposed to the other kind of jeans. <laughs> <laughs> you know what I mean? <laughs> yeah, yeah. No, I totally remember seeing pictures of that flow, but I think, I think it was only in Disneyland, which is... So, no, it was at Walt Disney World. Oh, uh, I remember it. Never mind. Yeah, it was before the afternoon parade. And it was kind of, it was one of those pre-parades that came like 10 minutes before the actual parade came. So everybody would think the parade was starting <laughs> and, oh, yeah, there's the Muppets. And then nothing. And then like there are those three families who leave and they're like, I guess that was the parade. Yeah, sorry. You ain't getting yeah, my right. spot, your spot back. I took it already. <laughs> yep. <laughs> And didn't they use that, it's the time of your life? Wasn't that kind of the song that was used for this campaign as well? Or am I making that up? You know, that song was around this time, but I don't know if that was for the volunteering or if that was for the year of a million dreams. I feel like they used that song for this pre-parade float, but they might have just been using something that was already used for something else. I'm not sure, but I do remember that. That sounds like Disney. Hey, we have this song. What else can we use it for? Some guy is pitching for them to use Main Street Electrical Parade theming. You're like, no, we've had enough of that. <laughs> All right, number eight on our list. This took place, it was a one-night-only event at Disney's Hollywood Studios back on uh, August 23rd, 2014. Derek, do you remember when this happened? I, I remember reading tweets all day long on August 24th, 2014. <laughs> Jeff, do you remember this? I just remember people being upset about lines. That's all I remember about yeah. it. So this was a one-night-only special ticketed event. It was called uh, Villains Unleashed. Villains Unleashed. And it was with this concept that it was going to be almost like a, a, a Mickey's Very Merry Christmas Party sort of idea where the park was going to be open, limited ticket access, but the attractions would be open, and there was special entertainment and character meet-and-greets specific to this event and that centered around the villains. And one of the villains that was meeting, and I believe the most popular villain there, maybe close second would be Oogie Boogie. I remember a lot of people being excited about Oogie Boogie. Oogie Boogie. But Constantine, who is the villain from The Muppets Most Wanted, uh, which was the sequel to their 2011 film, The Muppets, uh, was there meeting and greeting. And essentially, Constantine is an, a mirrored image of Kermit the Frog plus a mole on his face yep. and a Russian accent. Um, so he met, he did a meet and greet, and he was in puppet form. He was not in uh, walk-around character form. And if I remember correctly, he met in what looked like a jail cell or he was behind bars. Mm-hmm. And, uh, yeah, he had a four-plus-hour wait, and most people who wanted to meet him stood in line for the entire party just to get their, their photo taken. 
Yeah, I think that was what people complained about most, was that uh, most of these After Hours events take place at Magic Kingdom, and it just seemed like moving it to Hollywood Studios left them very unprepared for how big the crowds would be. Uh, can you imagine waiting four hours? Meet, I say meeting in quotes because you're on the other side of the jail prison bars from this puppet, getting a picture, and then it's like, well, there's 30 minutes left of the party. What do you want to do? <laughs> you want to go right tower? <laughs> you want to go wait 45 minutes for a pretzel? I mean, honestly, not much has changed in that respect. People at 90s night were definitely waiting for Darkwing Duck and Max's power line pretty much that long. So that's just that's just the deal with these these events. Uh, they have... 80s night was considerably better, but I think part of that was because of lower attendance. So the... They seem to be quote unquote figuring it out, but it took them a very long time to figure out the whole character line situation. Um, it's it's difficult when you have unique characters and a lot of people wanting those pictures. It's true. What blows my mind the most is that this this character you could actually meet essentially Kermit the Frog, but the villain form of him. It was so so popular, and yet Disney has never tried to do another meet and greet with the Muppets since. That's that's what boggles my mind. You would think they would see the potential based. It, yeah, it didn't go well, but they could see the potential and maybe find a better way of doing it in the six years since that happened. Yeah, I do remember meet and greets with Fozzie and I think Kermit and Gonzo at one of the first D twenty three expos. They actually did meet and greets with them, which was kind of cool. But yeah, it's not super common and once again talk about like it would be so much easier to interact with kermit the frog than it would with mickey mouse as far as like having a conversation or something so they're actually great characters for the sake of meeting and greeting so it is too bad they don't do it more often yeah i wonder if there's a licensing problem there you know they own them yes but you know they are separate i mean anybody who's ever worked for a big company knows that Everything's under the same umbrella, but you have to jump through so many hoops just to get something from another department. Um, so I wonder if it's that sort of thing. Because I know, like, uh, the Pixar characters, anything to do with Pixar, they are so particular about what they will and won't allow their characters to do. Because um, even though they're under the Disney umbrella, they're still a an independent studio in a sense. And I wonder if this, the Henson... You know, people are the same way. Maybe not. Uh, maybe Disney just doesn't think that the the demand is there. But uh, it is interesting to me that 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 event was so popular, but they they really haven't treaded you know those waters again. And and to me, it should be something like the DBC um, Moonlight Magic parties, where you do it uh, a couple times, couple three, four, five times a year, and throughout that entire year, it's the same setup. So. If you can't make it in May, but you can make it in September, it's still going to be the same characters that are meeting and greeting, the same entertainment offerings um, until it switches to another park next year and then they switch it up. I think that's a great way of doing it and spreading it out so people don't feel like they have to come and it gets slammed and they oversell tickets and people are waiting four hours. Yeah, yeah. Um, it it is kind of funny that we're talking about a character who met for just a few hours one night, but it was just such an infamous night in in modern history of Disney events that uh, it, it's still something people remember is this Constantine meet and greet. Yeah, I bet you if they would have said, we're doing a Villains Unleashed event and we're going to do it 
five times over the month of August or September or whatever it was. And, you know, five different Tuesdays in a row or whatever. That would have been way more successful than all the refunds they had to give to people who were ticked <laughs> off at the end of the night. Yeah, it's it's possible. Yeah. Of course, all the bloggers still would have been at the first one, but... <laughs> of course. Just to throw back to the, you know, why we might not see the Muppets like that in the park so much is it goes back to the whole voice match thing. Because if you're really yeah. interacting with people, you actually need a performer who can do the voice, unless they have some sort of voice modulator system in place. But I, I don't think, I wouldn't want that personally. So You know, what I think would be, be cool that. is if they did something similar to how they do um, Enchanted Tales with Belle, where... Maybe you come into the room with 30, 40, 50 people and Kermit and Fozzie do some sort of little little pre-taped show for you. And then at the end of that, you get to walk up to the front, take your picture with Kermit and Fozzie, and then move on. And while they're coming up, you can have the pre-recorded, all right, who's next? All right, step right up, you know, kind of a thing. And so that way it's it's quick, it's boom, 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 and it doesn't have to be personalized. Jeremy, that is a great idea. I love that. We just want a Muppets theme park. That's all this comes down to. We want <laughs> yeah. an entire park. If the fifth gate at Walt Disney World isn't a Muppets park, <laughs> we will collectively riot. <laughs> I just want a job. Somebody hire me in Imagineering. I'm full of good ideas. And a couple of bad ones. Aren't we all? All right. Well, that was Constantine. Moving on now to number nine on our list. For me personally... One of the most surprising attractions that has ever debuted at a Disney park. Uh, this was called The Muppets Present Great Moments in American History. I remember uh, it opened October 2nd, 2016. Oh, I remember I was there. I was there opening day. Um, but I remember seeing the tweet about this rumor that the Muppets were going to be popping out of windows above Hall of Presidents in Liberty Square. And my first thought was, that sounds just as ridiculous as that Guardians of the Galaxy taking the place of Tower of Terror rumor. There is, <laughs> there's no way that is happening. I mean, it, it sounds interesting, but it also sounds kind of dumb. And then it happened, and it was the most delightful thing I've ever seen. One of the most delightful things I've ever seen the Muppets be a part of. Oh, a thousand percent agree. And I love that there's two separate shows. So if you see one and you enjoy it, you can come back later for the second show and it's entirely different. And I wish they would continue to expand them. I know there's a lot of logistics to that. But um, yeah, as Jeff mentioned earlier, this idea that the Muppets were going to be in Liberty Square at first, everybody winced at it. But as you said, and to repeat what you said, they're so versatile and the Muppets have this way of just adapting their lunacy to any situation and still maintaining their charm. And that's really what their charm is. The fact that you can put them anywhere and they adapt and make it fun and exciting. Uh, it works. It really, really works. Now, as far as I know, the last show was Christmas week of 2019 and, and it didn't show at all in 2020. So this, this might be extinct. No, they came back recently. They came back recently for a holiday weekend. Was that not Christmas? You mean even more recently than Christmas? Yeah, I want to say Memorial Day, but it wasn't Memorial Day because that's coming up now. There was some, like, Labor Day or something. No, not Labor Day. What the heck holiday was it? There was some holiday weekend President's where they came Day? back. Maybe. Yeah, I think it was. I think it was President's Day, yeah. They they came back for, like, three days. 
Yeah, they came back for for a brief moment. You know, unfortunately, entertainment always seems to get the axe. Yeah. When budget cuts come around first, so I don't think we've seen the last of you know great it moments. It tests very well. It tests very very well. Um, it, the only reason it's been cut, from what I understand, it isn't because it's not popular, but it's because it's not the reason people are going to Magic Kingdom. Yeah. So when they look at these things, it's not just about you know is it popular or not. It's like are people buying tickets to the park for this specific reason? And the answer is no. But uh, it's great. I, I hope they do more versions of the show uh, for a couple reasons. Number one, I'd just like to see more versions. But number two, I would like to see the current two or past two uh, retired because uh, for consistency's sake, I would like to hear the new Kermit voice in this show. Because now we've got, you know, new Kermit online and on TV. But if we go to the parks, we're still hearing Steve Whitmire. So, yeah. What yeah. uh, what what um, events in history do you think they should do, Jeff? The opening of Walt Disney World would be a good event in American <laughs> history. Um, no, I'll, let me think. Something with Ben Franklin in the lightning rod or something could be interesting. Mm-hmm. Uh, what else? I don't know. You put me on the spot there. You're you're the history buff. What do you think? Well, I think the moon landing would be a fun take. Like if they tried to do something, yeah, but like it should that. be colonial themed. I, I think if we're going to be in Liberty Square, so we're going to stick with the colonial theme. I, I, I think. Okay. Well, I didn't know it was called Great Moments in Colonial History. That's fine. Well, considering where they're located, right, right. All right, all right, all right. I'll concede that. I'll, I'll concede that. But yeah, this is a great. That would make more sense in Tomorrowland if you wanted to do a moon landing. Hmm. Just the, let's just spread the Muppets everywhere. Yeah, pop, pop them out of all sorts of windows. You know what I want to see? I want to see random Muppets on the People Mover all day. That's what I want to see. <laughs> oh my gosh, yes. Uh, the Muppets. They're, they're everywhere, and yet they're not enough places. Mm. Um, True. So yeah, so this show, it was, you know, the, the, the actual puppets would pop out of the windows being performed by actual puppeteers. You saw Sam Eagle pop up a in his little window farther away. They had the confetti cannons at the end. And just the, the writing was so smart. It was so very on point with what the Muppets, what, with what we love about the Muppets. And uh, hopefully it comes back in some form. But that brings us to number 10 on our list. We're kind of ending on a want-want moment because we're going to talk about two restaurants that have a very, very minimal Muppets theme to them. One opened back in 2016. It's called Pizza Rizzo in Disney's Hollywood Studios. And the other one just opened this year. It's called Regal Eagle Smokehouse. Pizza Rizzo, you would think, is very heavily themed to Rizzo the Rat. Uh, It's not. It just kind of looks like a New York-style pizzeria with uh, Rizzo in the name. And kind of the same for the Smokehouse. Jeremy, you've been here, but as far as I know, uh, Sam Eagle is pretty much only on the signage. You got to look really hard to find them. The whole wall has a lot of like memorabilia and you can see a lot of fun Muppet references on the wall. But again, it's unless you're seated there, it's kind of hard to see because there's so many people and the tables are all right there. But uh, you could go into this knowing or excuse me, you could go into this not knowing that it's Muppets related and walk out never changing your opinion. Yeah. These these are unfortunate. I mean, I've only done Pizza Rizzo, but it's just it's unfortunate. And frankly, I kind of wish as much as I love the fact that they pay tribute to the Muppets, I'd rather them not at all because it's just cheap 
It's, I mean, it's as if they were like, hmm, I don't think this is going to work, so let's make it as easy to switch over to something else as possible, is what it feels like to me. And that's just not the way to treat the Muppets. Come on, give them a fair chance. That's a thousand percent what it is. Like, it's uh, overlay ready. You know, it's built overlay ready. But do you, do you feel like that's the way it was with Pizza Planet, though? Like, I always felt Pizza Planet was just enough to go, hey, this is Pizza Planet from Toy Story, but... Not enough to make you feel like you were in Pizza Planet from Toy Story. I think that's fair, too. Yeah. Can you believe that Alien Pizza Planet that was part of Pixar Fest at Disneyland is still in our Tomorrowland? (laughs) (laughs) Uh, Yes. Yes, I can. Unbelievable. Thankfully, they've fixed the signage and made it more permanent because that was an embarrassment. (sighs) But but still, it's really weird. Now, one thing I want to point out point out about uh this area in hollywood studios i don't know if it's connected to pizza rizzo but there are those outdoor bathrooms that you have to climb down the stairs to get into uh near muppet vision and they're pretty new i think they're really nice bathrooms but above them (laughs) i'm just saying they're nice bathrooms and not so nice bathrooms these are really good if you're at hollywood studios and above them is a huge sign that i think says gonzo's royal flush do you know what i'm talking about Either of you? I can picture... I think I know what the Gonzo's real flush is, but I I don't know these bathrooms, no. Okay. Uh, Like I said, maybe only three or four years old, but these huge letters, Gonzo's real flush, I was watching the 2011 Muppets film with Jason Segel and Amy Adams last week, and I don't know if you remember, but when they do the montage where they go pick up all the Muppets, go meet them where they are and see if they want to band together... When they find Gonzo, he's working at a toilet factory. Oh, that's right. Yeah. And it's called Gonzo's Royal Flush. And when they run out of the building, you see this exact signage outside the building. I mean, it looks exactly the same. And until then, until I watched this again, I had no idea that that park bathroom was a reference to this 2011 film. Well, Well, Gonzo... Gonzo and plumbing, yeah, that goes back to the Muppet movie, the original. Okay, that's fair. That's fair. But but I mean, if you see the sign, it is the. It's like they could have taken these letters from the movie set and put them in Hollywood Studios. You know, maybe they did. Maybe that's the well, the yeah. same signage. It's possible. Yeah, I like it. Yeah, uh, it just makes me wish that if you're going to build a pizza restaurant, why not just bring back your idea for the uh, Gonzo's Pizza Pandemonium Parlor? Well, I remember that's what a lot of people were thinking it was going to be when they first announced. Because you got to remember, this was around the same time when people were like, oh, Muppet Vision 3D is going away. So like, there was that rumor. And then it's like, no, they're building Pizza Rizzo. So obviously, Muppet Vision 3D is safe for at least a little longer. And so uh, we thought that, hey, this, this Muppet you know, restaurant's finally going to happen. Like That was supposed to be part of the Muppet Studios to go full circle here. And uh, when we didn't get that, it was kind of disappointing. And then, you know, just a realization that maybe Muppet Vision 3D isn't as safe as we might want it to be. But I don't know. You know what could save this restaurant? And I think it would be a fairly cheap uh, idea. And that is on the side of the building. Sunny Eclipse. (laughs) (laughs) That too. No, but on the side of the building, put a, a window that looks like you're looking into the kitchen and just make a like a scene of a bunch of Rizzo-looking rats all doing zany things, cooking pizza in a kitchen. And you just get the idea that, that 
that's who's in the kitchen making the pizza. And I think that would go a long way for theming inside this restaurant. And every once in a while, could, could they break into that song from Muppets Take Manhattan where the the rats are in the kitchen? Yeah. Oh, yeah. There you go. Yeah. There we go. Jeremy, you are killing it. I love that idea. Thank you. you. I'm sending this to to the Imagineerings, my audition. Yeah, yeah. I mean, it wouldn't be all that different from sci-fi dine-in theater. Just make it like an hour loop, and it just keeps looping and looping. Yeah, you know, and they could, you know, different little gags that could run over and over again. And I'm thinking almost on the same way, like, uh, you know how when you go past the, the Snow White house at the end of Seven Dwarfs Mine Train, and it's just like this little... This little scene with some animatronics, it's not too complicated, but it just kind of runs over and over again. Something like that. And at least then you get this idea that, oh, Rizzo is involved in this. Yeah. Listen, not to take anything away from your great idea, but I guarantee all of these conversations and ideas have been made by people who were designing these these restaurants. And it came down, guess what? You have two thousand dollars to do this you know what i mean like <laughs> yeah th- there are passionate people working on these things i guarantee who love the muppets and would love to have done stuff like that heck they had the plans from that original restaurant uh, you know they have access to all that stuff and they just clearly wanted to do something super cheap it's not even open all the time anymore and from what i understand the food's not even very good so uh, it's like I said, I'd rather they just not do it than really, you know, do it. To poorly. be honest, I've never had good pizza, like good, good pizza at Walt Disney World. Let's fix that. Let's open a good pizza joint. People love pizza. I mean, it's a no brainer. Have good pizza available. Even Via, Nap- Via Napoli, which is, it's decent pizza. It's, I mean, it's, but I still think Uno's outside of property is better pizza than there. Well, on that note. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, why did you make this number 10? We should have gone from worst to best. We went from best to worst. Well, sadly. to be fair, this was not a countdown. This was a chronological order of oh, Muppets attractions. Enough. You could see how they have uh, supposedly progressed, but maybe not so much. <laughs> um, but yeah, that that's the list. It was only 10 things, but as far as I know, that is a comprehensive list of Muppets attractions, past and present. At Walt Disney World. Hopefully there will be 11, 12, and on in the future. Uh, But who knows? Who knows what the future holds for the Muppets at Walt Disney World. You know what would be the greatest surprise ever? Is if like we all of a sudden find out that Bob Chapek, new CEO, is a huge Muppets fan. Because I honestly don't think Bob Iger gave a crap about the Muppets. So that would be really funny if all of a sudden Chapek's a Muppets fan and we see him everywhere. I don't think it's the case. But it would be interesting. What if the parks reopen and it turns out they've been workshopping a new version of Great Moments in American History this whole time and it's ready to go? And there's a great Muppet movie ride ready to go. (laughs) You just go, you just dream all the way big, like nothing in between. Yeah. (laughs) I mean, if they closed, if they closed all this time to create a a new Great Moments in American History, that better be a a phantasmic version of the show or something. That's a long rehearsal period. I think it's going to be uh, the Muppets present Hamilton. Ah, there we go. That would be amazing. And they're all holding like handheld mics. (laughs) That'd be great. All right. Well, Jeff, always a pleasure to have you, sir. Do you want to remind our listeners where they can find you? Yes. uh, Do you mind if I actually take a minute to plug some things? Because I've been working on some stuff that I would love to let your folks know about. Is that all right? I would love for you to. And I especially want you to talk about your brilliant new uh 
column online. Oh, okay. Well, I'll start with that then. For Attractions Magazine, I think you're talking about, I, I was recently hired to write a weekly column for their website and then also their seasonal printed magazine, and it's called DePauly on De Parks, and it is <laughs> was titled by our good friend Ruben, who, uh, you know, literally he sent that idea and I just started laughing out loud, and I was like, okay, I think that's it. And uh, so that's the title, DePauly on De Parks, and it's basically my opinions on theme park stuff because apparently I have a lot of them to share between the podcast and such and I I love the column because I get to talk about more than just Disney as much as I love talking about Disney I'm also a huge Universal fan and not Scary Farm and all that stuff so this will give me the opportunity to write about all of that and then on top of that, I just kind of added a bunch of stuff over at DisneyCoastToCoast.com. For a long time, I've been giving away this document called America's Hidden Mickeys over there. And it's basically a list of all these little destinations around the USA that you might not think about visiting, but Disney fans would love to visit. So I updated that document, and I added five more free documents. I'll go through them really quickly. One of them's called On the Roadie Again, which I am particularly proud of that title because it's super nerdy. And it's uh, kind of my favorite compilation of Joe Rohde's posts about uh, great information, behind-the-scenes Disney stuff. It's fantastic. And then there's a theme park comfort kit with things I think you need when you're visiting a theme park, where the magic is made, listing all these different addresses and locations where Disney makes all their magic. A bunch of Disney music playlist compilation list I made, and uh, some documentary and book suggestions. So all of that can be picked up for the price of free over at DisneyCoastToCoast.com. Just head over there, and you should see a pop-up. And if you don't, just click on free on the main menu. And, well, you know, uh, our good friend Matt would say, that's a bargain! There we go. That's a bargain. So head to DisneyCoastToCoast.com for that. And then also, I've been working on these compilation episodes. I've interviewed tons of amazing Disney people through the years, and I, I put together five compilation episodes. One's called Beauty and the Beast, Screen to Stage to Screen, having conversations with these guests about first the animated film, then the stage musical, and then back to screen for the live-action film. Don Hahn, who produced the animated and executive produced the live-action is part of that. And then I've got a Tower of Ter Terror behind the Fifth Dimension um, compilation episode, Conversations with Disney Legends, where I talked to Bob Gurr, Bill Farmer, and Floyd Norman, Lending Their Voices, which is tons of voiceover people from Donald Duck to Star Wars animated series and Elena of Avalor, Beauty and the Beast, and so many more. And then Art as a Craft, talking about the craft of actually making art with a Disney illustrator, a background painter, and Disney legend Floyd Norman. So if you head to DisneyCoastToCoast.com and click Click on exclusive there. You can find out how to get those. And yeah, a bunch of stuff going on at DisneyCoastToCoast.com. So I, I hope love some, it. Uh, yeah, I hope some folks decide to check it out. Yeah, and if you haven't already, go right now to Disney Coast to Coast and check out uh, the sister episode, if you will, between Jeremy and Jeff talking about the Muppets at Walt Disney World, the NBC special. Uh, so thanks to you, Jeff. Thank you to Brian J. Jones. Jeremy, do you want to let our listeners know where they can find this uh, awesome historian online or excuse me, biographer. Absolutely. He is on Twitter at Brian J J A Y Jones. Uh, you can follow it along there and his books are sold. where all fine books are sold. In fact, off the air, he was uh, telling us too about how excited he was about the Jim Henson audiobook. So you can find his book as an audiobook. And uh, he was saying how the author doesn't really have a lot of control over who reads their audiobook. That's kind of in the publisher's hand. 
but he was very satisfied with the gentleman who did it, uh, did a lot of fun voices and things. So if you're not a reader, but you, uh, you know, are into listening to audiobooks, check that out wherever fine audiobooks are sold. Can I actually plug that real quickly? Because I have a little code where people can get that for free right now Whoa, if they want. For free? Whoa. Yes. That is a bargain. <laughs> now, if you go to audibletrial.com slash DCTC, you can actually get that title for free. So that's A-U-D-I-B-L-E-T-R-I-A-L.com slash DCTC. And just look up that book. I know it's on there because I've checked it out. And you can get it for free right now. So if you don't mind me plugging uh, no. that code, there you go. That's awesome. It's almost like we planned that. Yeah. I mean, it's still May. Let's just keep the Jim Henson celebrations going. You know, exactly. go read his book. All right. Well, that does it for this week's show. Thank you so much for tuning in. We will see you next time. Take a little time to find the magic in every day. Bye-bye now. Bye-bye now.